All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your space capitalism speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode is the fourth and also the final in our series on Isaac Asimov's super important masterpiece novel, Foundation. This was published in 1951. And this whole bonus series, as I've said before, this is brought to you by one of our really awesome, really generous Patreon supporters who commissioned it. So again, thank you so much for supporting us and, and for having us do this series. And also, as you have heard me say on every one of these episodes, hey, I am joined today by Jay Deal. Jay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Well, this episode, we are talking about part four, which is called The Traders, and then also part five, which is called The Merchant Princes. These were both published in Astounding Magazine in 1944. They had diff different titles than they do in the book, though, of course, we're taking the text from the book version, the novel version. Before we get into it, though, we want to actually talk about the future of this collaboration that we've been doing here, because, hey, we have come to the end of Foundation, and we've both been, uh, you know, I will speak for both of us here, Jay, and say I think we've been having a pretty good time with this. And I've been having a great time with this. Yeah, so we're, we're planning to continue this, uh, not with Asimov, at least not right away, but with uh, taking medievalism in speculative fiction as kind of, a, a, you know, just a category of its own. So, Jay, do you want to tell people what we've got in mind to do next? Yeah, it looks like we're looking down the road to talking about the classic work of Guy Gavriel Kay, The Lions of Al-Rasan, uh, a, a fantasy work um, set in a sort of reimagined medieval Spain. Uh, so looking very much forward to that down the road. Yeah, we'll get actually a lot of war and uh, religion, basically all the stuff that we had in part three of, of Foundation. And, and that'll be a lot of fun to even do a bit of comparison, I think, at that point. It tells you what people think about the Middle Ages, doesn't it? <laughs> it's all war and religion. I mean, right. It's, it's, yes, uh, it turns it out. It turns out. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's turn our attention back to Asimov here and get into part four. We're going to treat that separately first. Uh, probably not for too long, to be honest. And then we'll do part five. And then we'll actually finish up this episode by talking about the book. Uh, you know, it's in in its entirety, really from a, a zoomed out, it's kind of thematic level. But to get into it, Jay's going to give us a synopsis of part four, and then we'll kick off our discussion. So part four, The Traitors, introduces us to the character named Limar Panyats, or Panyats, I suppose, who is a freelance trader and part of the Foundation's officially sanctioned trade guild, um, through which the Foundation is trying to build some kind of religiously inflected commercial empire as a way of expanding its political influence in the galaxy. Panyats, at the opening of this, receives a message informing him that a fellow trader named Eskel Gorov, who is actually secretly an agent of the Foundation, has been imprisoned on the planet Ascone, which is referred to as a closed area that refuses to buy tech from the Foundation on the grounds of upholding some traditional religious beliefs. Um, and as a result of this, it represents a kind of potential threat to the Foundation's growing hegemony. Gorov has been arrested for entering into Ascone's territory where he has been trying to find a way to overcome the planet's resistance. When uh, Ponyets arrives, the Grand Master of Ascone indicates that he is willing to ransom Gorov back to Ponyets for, of all things in the galaxy, gold. <laughs> 
And Ponyets, seeking to find some way to deal with this situation, constructs a device that will transmute iron into gold. This a clear reference to alchemy, of course, and demonstrates its use for the Grand Master. In the midst of this demonstration, another young Asconian counselor, whose name is Furl, seems quite suspicious of the whole thing, but actually turns out to be more than willing to deal with Ponyets, who winds up selling him the transmuter, selling the transmuter to Furl. In a clever twist, however, Ponyets has planted a microfilm recorder, this is what it's <laughs> actually called, in the transmuter, blackmails Furl with a video recording of him using it, and forces the counselor to buy his entire stock of technology ensuring that the foundation is now going to have a commercial foothold on Ascone. Ponyets, meanwhile, is going to reap a huge fortune through access to Furl's tin mines, and Gorov, who is now released, admires the sale but questions Ponyets' morals in the entire thing. The traitor Ponyets responds with an epigram attributed to the character of Salvor Hardin, never let your sense of morals prevent you from doing what is right. Yeah, what a crazy worldview that is. That's something we're gonna we're gonna have to talk yeah. about. But I think you know we're gonna talk about Selfer Harden sort of uh, in, in in more detail and part of the the wrap up component of this episode. Yeah. So we can we can save that for then. But yeah, this this is the the smallest section of the entire novel, and it also feels really quite disconnected actually from the the rest of it. It does. I mean, we have a you know the smallest cast of characters, the kind of tightest storyline in some ways. No, you know, the foundation is a distant, influential but distant figure in this part of the storyline. None of the action takes place on Terminus itself. It's doing the work of setting up uh, the fifth and final part of the novel in a lot of ways um, by introducing the idea of these traitors and giving us a glimpse into the kind of work they are doing and expanding um, the influence of the foundation and stuff like this. But I agree. It does feel a little out of place compared to the rest of the novel. Yeah. I would, I would say it actually doesn't even fill a whole lot of narrative purpose. As you say, it is setting up part five, but I don't think part five actually needs any kind of setup. And one of the strange things about part four is that nowhere in part four, do we get a real concrete explanation of when we are right in a book that is entirely about when we are, it's about measuring how long it has been since, uh, yeah. from, you know, from crisis to crisis. And, you know, since the, we start the clock ticking on, you know, the, the collapse of the empire and the creation of the new one, keeping track of how long it has been is really important. Like that, that does so much of the work world yeah. building and we don't find out when part four takes place until actually part five correct and 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 even there you'd have to read pretty carefully to piece all the sort of dates together to give a sense as to when this is taking place um as far as i can tell that we are in part four about 135 years after the initial establishment of foundation on terminus and maybe some 50 to 60 years after the events of part three, which involves the thwarted attack of Anacreon on Terminus by Salvar Hardin. Yeah, that's exactly my math as well. In fact, I, I had ish. I had sort of all my numbers ending in five and then ish next to them on the, yeah, exactly. on the outline yeah. here. But yeah, you have to actually get, uh, you know, you have to do math to come up with that. And you get that information on two different pages. Uh, in the edition that we've been using, it's, you know, it's page 145 and 157, uh, both 
both in part five in order to puzzle out, you know, when, well, one, when part five is, I guess, but then also part four, yeah. which is all sort of a strange choice. You know, it makes sense. You know, it works fine in, in reading this in a book, but if you were just reading these in a magazine months apart, that's a, actually kind of a weird uh, choice for, uh, you know, giving this to your audience that's reading it in this serialized form. Yeah. I mean, all we can really tell from contextually reading in part four is that at this point, um, Salvar Hardin is long dead and is sort of a figure of legend uh, in the minds of the the members of Foundation and, and the residents of Terminus, and that enough time has elapsed that the traitors have emerged as a kind of important force for the foundation and that foundation has sort of successfully expanded through the four previously independent kingdoms so you know there's contextual stuff that says like okay yeah some time some substantial amount of time has definitely passed since part three but no no further details or anything like that well if we measured that from the perspective of ascone as well i mean ascone is presented as being this superstitious backwater yeah they they have a kind of animistic religion right they believe in the spirits of their ancestors part of their religion is the the that nuclear power nuclear contraptions nuclear g-jaws are are forbidden devil's machines, devil's machines right <laughs> and there's a kind of absolute monarchy but that also has to do with uh, kinship networks which you know that's not abnormal that that goes you know that's fairly normal in in pre-modern human societies to have the, those things going together yeah. there but that their memory of the days when they were part of the galactic empire uh, seem real distant as if an entirely an entire reworking of their civilization has taken place to explain the absence of the galactic empire, um, that there has been this kind of um, massive work of of cultural memory to sort of figure out what it means now to be part to, to not be part of the galactic empire that has resulted in what are apparently deeply held enough beliefs to refuse any kind of commerce or technological aid from foundation. But as it turns out, you know, all of this is only about 130 years, only a few generations, actually, since the disappearance of the Galactic Empire. Right. This is one of the things that's been uh, troubling us as historians, I think, throughout is actually how little time is is passing here from from section to section. And and maybe that can lead us in even to thinking about, I think, one of the big questions that we've been asking about each section, which is, hey, what is the real world analog to this? I am not sure I have an answer for part four. Yeah, I, I don't have a good one. I have better answers, I think, for part five. Um, but I, I don't have a good answer um, for exactly what is supposed to be going on here with part four. There, there's some evocation of the opening of trade routes um, that you might see as connected um, to, to, to things like the Silk Road and medieval Europe's connections to the Far East via overland and overseas trade routes and things like this. Um, but there's really no clear parallel or anything here. It, it's really more of a thematic concept that Asimov is playing with that somehow religion is beginning to give way to capitalism, which is, you know, in some ways the major theme of, of part five and so forth. And here, I think he's just trying to sort of point out the ways in which uh, a kind of religiously informed empire by seeking to expand its influence over 
more and more space might in some ways kind of foster the development of trade and thus foster the development of kind of more capitalist or economic modes of hegemony. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. I think this feels to me vaguely kind of late medieval. And I I think that's maybe what you're thinking for part five as well, which we may as well just transition to in in a moment. But I also had the real sense, actually, that Ascone is... Asimov's sort of loose riff on uh, like late medieval West Africa, uh, like thinking oh, of like the, the Songhai ah. Empire of the, the the 15th and 16th centuries that um, resisted the ex, you know sort of commercialism of of Portugal in in particular, but also Spain as as well. Um, very interested in gold. It's it's actually like you know where almost all the world's gold <laughs> actually is right, yeah. is in that empire, and so it's real important to them. And just the 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 most famous uh, ruler of uh, the Songhai. Empire is named Askia. And so just, you know, hearing that, like in even just the name there is sort of what I had in in, in mind or, you know, had in mind that Asimov had in mind at least a little bit. Yeah, no, that sounds absolutely right. I did not know of any of this this context, but certainly the kind of obsession with gold um, and the, the kind of caricatured depiction of ancestor worship uh, and things like this make make very good sense in that context yeah yeah and and religion in the Songhai Empire would be an extremely you know complex thing to, to talk about and, and a thing that neither of us is an expert in but uh, Askia was actually himself Muslim and many of his subjects would have been Muslim as well though there would also have been other religions non monotheistic religions some of them animist or in or religions in which uh, ancestor worship or ancestor veneration played an important part. But yeah, Asimov is clearly painting with pretty broad strokes here, I think, just to really give a sense of, hey, we've been looking at uh, this analog to the European Middle Ages, and now let's show them, uh, you know, these European medieval people going out and seeing what else is out in the rest of the world in a kind of, you know, early part of an age of discovery, I think is what he has in mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I agree with that. All right. Well, I don't have anything else to say about part four outside of the context of part five. How about you? I agree. I think we should move on. Yeah, let's do it. So the synopsis for part five here is a, a, a complicated business, as it turns out, because part five has a lot of moving parts just in terms of storytelling. Um, it covers multiple locations as several characters. So we'll try to get through it somewhat efficiently here. But the concluding part of Foundation focuses on the story of Hober Mallow, who is a master trader of the Foundation, although we are told that he is born on the planet of Smyrno, which was one of the four kingdoms that were formerly antagonists of Terminus, but are now part of its growing empire. And he has been summoned by a figure named Jorain Sutt, who is the secretary to the current mayor of Terminus, who recruits him to investigate the Corellian Republic, where three Foundation trade ships have recently disappeared, which is raising the possibility that Corell has somehow gained access to nuclear weapons. And Sut, who believes that they are in the midst of a Selden crisis, meets with a guy named Publis Manlio, who is the foreign secretary and primate of the church uh, on Terminus. And he voices his fear that traitors who are educated but not religious possibly represent an uncontrolled secular element that might threaten Foundation's goals. 
Now, meanwhile, Mallow, Hober Mallow, the main character of this part, travels to Corel, where the Commodore named Asper Argo has maintained independence from the Foundation by regulating trade and by prohibiting missionaries. While docked on Corel and waiting for developments, an injured Foundation missionary, or so we are told, named Jord Parma is led aboard Mallow's ship. And Mallow, against the protests of several other figures, nonetheless releases the priest to a Corellian mob, suspecting that it was a trap of some sort, and then immediately receives an invitation to meet with the Commodore of Corellia, this guy named Asper Argo. Mallow promises the Commodore a trade deal that will make both of them rich, but without, and this is emphasized, any influence from Foundation's religious leaders, and manages also to finagle a look at the factories of Corellia, where he finds no evidence of nuclear power, but notes that the Commodore's bodyguards hold nuclear weapons that are etched with the sign of the old Galactic Empire, a hint that is apparently still out there and perhaps expanding into the periphery again. We're not done yet. To unravel this mystery, Mallow travels to the planet of Sewena, where he learns from an old former patrician of the Empire of the history of rebellions by various viceroys against the still-present emperors, most of these viceroys aiming themselves to become emperor, and also of imperial retribution against Sewena as a result of these rebellions. There's a current viceroy. He, too, is planning to rebel against the emperor or failing that his plan B is to carve out a new empire in what is referred to as the barbarian hinterlands, <laughs> where he has already forged an alliance with Corel by giving his daughter in marriage to the Commodore. And this alliance turns out to be the source of Corel's nuclear weapons. So as it turns out, has nuclear power. But Mallow learns that it is antiquated and that the techs of the planet are incapable of repairing the generators. They can only maintain them. So with all this done, Mallow returns to Terminus armed with an apparent understanding that the Foundation's religion is no longer a viable instrument for its expansion, but that trade is. He plans to run for a seat on the council while Jorain Sutt actually puts him on trial for the murder of that priest back on Corel, the one who was released to the Corellian mob. In the trial, however, Mallow outmaneuvers Sutt by demonstrating that the priest on Corel was actually part of the Corellian Republic's secret police. This apparently makes him extremely popular, and with his newfound popularity <laughs> and wealth, Mallow engineers the arrest of both Sutt and this other guy, Manless. He is elected mayor, and he deals with the inevitable war with the Corellian Republic and its imperially supplied ships by doing absolutely nothing and letting the economic forces of trade resolve the crisis as Corel is gradually deprived of the tech on which it had become reliant and without which it will enter unending economic depression. Mallow thus transforms the government of Terminus from a quasi-theocracy to a secular plutocracy and becomes the first of the merchant princes of Terminus. Yeah, this is an absolutely bonkers section here. I mean, it's really exciting, but it's got so much going on. It's this so much going on. It's this crazy like political thriller that's got international intrigue, you know, domestic election intrigue, and then culminates with a real radical transformation of society and also like the constitution on Terminus as well. Absolutely. Uh, all of it really culminating in it and yet another courtroom drama, which it turns out Asimov, I guess, thinks that the way to get what you want is to get yourself on trial and make a good exactly. speech. Exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah. As long as you're on trial, make a good speech, show some evidence and stuff like that. I mean, I really glossed over it, but the amount of exposition that goes on (laughs) by Mallow in this trial to explain what has actually happened and stuff like that is, you know, one of the longer sections, actually one of the longer scenes in the entire novel. It is. And I I mean, it's certainly quite Exciting, right? I mean, courtroom dramas, courtroom speeches are a real staple of storytelling. And in particular, I think a real staple of sort of mid 20th century storytelling. I mean, I guess we still get them on TV, but there's a lot more crying in those now than there used to be less, you know, more crying than grandstanding. But the sort of grandstanding courtroom scene was, uh, you know, I mean, look, uh, it's, it's, it's right there in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, absolutely. And it does, you know, I probably sounded a little cranky about it there when I said it was a long section of exposition and stuff like that. But it is it's a well-crafted sort of scene. And it also provides a nice kind of full circle sense to the initial scene where Harry Seldon is effectively on trial in the very first part of the novel um, before the uh, imperial government and where he delivers his kind of speech about the coming dark ages and everything like that. So we do have a kind of nice closure in that sense from part one to part five. Yeah, that's a great observation. I had not actually thought about it in those terms. And we, we, we will return to the question of, you know, how this ends, how successfully this wraps up the whole novel at the end. But uh, let's start at the beginning here. So just to refresh, you know, when we were talking about part four, we you know talked about when we are the chronology. And so here, part five, this is... 155 or so, 155-ish years since part one, since that that Harry Seldon trial. And then really, I think the marker that probably matters the most to us is actually that it's about 75 years since part three, right? Because part four, I think, gets sort of a 0.5 after it in terms of like the world building, right? So in terms of like hopping from like world to world or, you know, uh, time period to time period, right? It really goes from part three to part five here. And it's been 75 years. So yeah, let's kick this off again by thinking about what is the real world analog. And I I think you've got a better sense of this than I do, Jay. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things are going on here. Um, Definitely what Asimov seems to be trying to play with is, you know, depending on your periodization, what we would consider some late medieval or kind of early, early modern even Renaissance developments, um, if we want to use those terms. So one key giveaway here is the reference to the Karelian Republic, um, which is referred to, this is on page 148 of our edition that I'm pulling this as a republic in name, but a monarchy in practice. Um, And this certainly seems to be an evocation of the state of several late medieval or early modern Italian city-states um, that call themselves republics and indeed are republics, um, but that eventually sort of are taken over by aristocratic families, sometimes referred to as the rise of seniorial rule or the rise of the signori, um, that turn these city states that are republics in name back to being effectively monarchies and stuff like this. And this too, I think, is what Asimov is playing with, with the rise of the merchant priests, or excuse me, not the merchant priests, the merchant princes, is the idea of these kind of commerce-driven seniorial families that are going to seize control and begin to build commercially based empires or indeed commercially based monarchies, we might call call them. Um, And I think this is part of the, the historical analog that Asimov is playing with at this moment. 
I agree. I think this feels very sort of 15th century to, to, yeah, to me. Exactly. Yeah. And this is the world where, you know, we're, we're talking about Italy. And I think that's, it's quite clear that that's mostly what Asimov has in mind here. But this is happening elsewhere in the, the Baltic region yep. in the, the 14th and 15th centuries, actually even really earlier than that. But I think especially in, in early modernity, there's this thing called the Hanseatic League, which is a sort of confederation of city states that have, you know, is the real sort of raison d'etre is is commerce and you know some other places where this is happening as well in in europe and something important that really grows out of this movement that i think we don't talk enough about maybe when we do our survey classes with students and so on is that this is really where the foundations for the financial system that runs our lives now gets laid. This is when banking is essentially invented, uh, currency systems, all sorts of things that uh, are maybe not interesting so much to people like, you know, the two of us (laughs) who who are really humanities type people and not maybe so much interested in economics for the sake of economics. But it's a pretty important part of the development of the global world system that we live in now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, what, what, you know, in, in very, in very crude terms here, what Asimov is playing with um, is the idea of the kind of rise of a, a, a capitalistic society, a society whose driving force um, is no longer going to be religious ideology, but is going to be commerce, the accumulation of capital and the wielding of power through the possession of capital. Um, this is an idea that he, you know, evokes quite briefly and bluntly um, in the final pages of the novel when um, Jorain Sutt is having his final confrontation with Mallow and says something to the effect of, ah, so you're going to make us a plutocracy now, um, rule by wealth rather than rule by religious ideology. And I think there's definitely a sense, painting in real broad strokes, but I think there's definitely a sense in which you could describe the transition from the Middle Ages to modernity this way. I think that's a meaningful lens, or maybe not meaningful, but a useful lens to to view that transition. And maybe something we should do before we go on is actually just to pause and say, hey, what do we mean by late Middle Ages and what do we mean by early modernity? Yeah. Well, what do we mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I I say that only ironically because, you know, this is the topic that the more you think about it, the less you know about it, basically, (laughs) and the harder it is to assign a date. I'll let you go first, indeed. Sure. Well, I think, you know, there's a a parallel to this in that in earlier episodes on Foundation, we've been talking about late antiquity and the early Middle Ages uh, and using those terms to refer to the same centuries. And the same thing happens here with the late Middle Ages and early modernity. And so, I don't know, maybe really zoomed out, something we probably should have done back in the first episode here is say, you know, the kind of standard big picture model of the periodization of history that doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning. It's just a frame that people now, historians, scholars now can use to refer to things in in really broad strokes is to say there are kind of three divisions. There's the ancient world, there's the medieval world, that is to say the Middle Ages, and then there's the modern world, which, you know, is the world we're living in and is more or less the world since 1500. And then we use the late antiquity as kind of an idea of saying, okay, but like, People didn't wake up on January 1st in the year 500 and say, wow, 
I mean, last night I went to bed, it was the ancient world, and today it's the medieval world, and everything feels different. I'm going to eat something different, I'm going to wear different clothes, I'm going to speak a different language, right? That's not how change happens. And so, to call that period late antiquity is to really emphasize the continuities between the ancient world and the medieval, and to see that as a period of, of transition and transformation, uh, and to really examine the continuities. And we do the same thing with early modernity, where we say early modernity is actually this cusp, it's this transformational and transitional period between, or not really between, but that overlaps the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modernity. And uh, it's a lens that allows us to see continuity, and really is a lens that we can use to focus on the continuities, really by looking at what are the elements of the modern world that we actually see beginning to develop in the medieval, and let's follow those continuities. And, and actually, banking and the finance system and commerce happening in the 15th century is a real big part of that story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, I mean, it's not only that we have the term early modernity, um, it's also very common to use a term we used earlier, also the late Middle Ages or late medieval Europe, which kind of further softens um, any kind of stark dichotomies between modernity and medieval Europe, between modern and medieval Europe by sort of breaking down the Middle Ages into uh, several smaller subsets. Um, one of them, you know, we often use the term late Middle Ages to describe the period right before early modernity. And, you know, once you start breaking these periods down more and more like this, you do get the sense that, yeah, you're telling a story that is a lot more about continuity than about sudden change and so forth. And that you really get a sense that a lot of the kind of cultural and social and economic infrastructure for the thing we call modernity was being set up long before 1500 in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. I guess one of the ways that we could we could talk about both late antiquity and early modernity is just to say that it's totally possible to go to a conference that, you know, an academic conference that's billing itself as being about, uh, say, the Roman Empire or the Roman world or the ancient world and to have someone like me there uh, giving a presentation about the 6th century or even the 7th century, uh, but, but looking at those centuries from a kind of Roman or ancient perspective. But I also could go to a conference that's definitely about the Middle Ages, the medieval world. And you could do that again for the 14th century, that you might be someone who uh, identifies as being a medievalist at that conference, but you also could be someone who identifies as a modernist at that conference. Yeah. Right? It's these overlap periods. Yeah, absolutely. And all this to say, like you use the date 1500 uh, a little while ago, which is often a, a kind of common date given for sort of, all right, this is a convenient shorthand for the end of the Middle Ages and the start of the early modern period. Um, but, you know, there have been scholars who have made arguments for dates um easily a hundred years before that, even more in some cases. There are scholars now who would push um the, the the key moment all the way back to something like the Thirty Years' War in 1618 to 1648 um, as the kind of decisive event um, that really kind of shifted Europe on a on a course other than its medieval course or something like that. And so when you begin to add it all up, you realize, oh, yeah, 
250 years <laughs> encompassed in those dates. And we're, we think something happened somewhere in there <laughs> that, that, that says we can stop saying medieval Europe and start saying modern Europe, that we can use that term. But it's a big blur. It's a big mess. If you ask historians for a date, you'll get lots of different answers. 1453, 1489, 1517, 1618. You know, these are all years you could toss around and make a case for. Well, this is often how I open my survey classes on the the modern world. If I'm teaching, you know, the history of the world from 1500 up to now, just just to open with the question of how do we define modernity? How do we measure that the Middle Ages have come to an end? And and that's always a great way, I think, actually, to kick off a semester to get students spitballing yeah. about that. It's always really fun for me to see what things they come up with because invariably there's going to be a student who's going to say something I've never heard before, never thought of before, and that's super fun. Absolutely. And here again, just to, you know, we've hammered Asimov a lot for his timeline uh, in these podcasts, and maybe this is beginning to flog a little bit of a dead horse right (laughs) here. But it's just an interesting observation that simply the debate as to when sort of medieval Europe stops being a thing and modern Europe starts being a thing involves um, a 250-year transition period. And the entire story of Foundation from its inception to this moment is 155 years in this. Right. Um, I mean, this is true for <laughs> the fall of Rome as well. That takes, I would say, exactly. is about a century and a half to actually happen. And yeah, Asimov has all of this happening at this kind of crazily accelerated pace. And Asimov's not alone in, in speculative fiction for, for doing that. No, of course not. I mean, this is, we, we, we've encapsulated the entire story of the fall of Rome up through whatever we want to call the Italian Renaissance or the Reformation or something in two persons in two lifetimes, right? <laughs> 150 years, roughly two lifetimes, a generation and a half or so of time or something like that. So we've really kind of compressed the, the the developments here in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, the amount of time that has passed is actually less than has passed between us recording this podcast and the Civil War, the American Civil War, right? That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, all right. I think we've we've done a good job of of establishing a, a real world analog here, and and we should also note too that this is sort of the last stuff that Edward Gibbon writes about in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, because he really ends that book with the final conquest of Constantinople in 1453 by Ottoman Turks, which is actually frequently one of the events that is held up as marking the end of the Middle Ages and and really was for for Gibbon, who marked the end of the Middle Ages with that and also finally the end of the Roman Empire, right, the end of the Eastern Roman Empire with that. And so and so this seems like a good analog for ending, you know, what has essentially been the science fiction adaptation of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. So yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Although it's interesting to note that in Asimov's version, um, we have hints of a resurgent galactic empire out there, perhaps expanding back onto the periphery rather than what you might have expected, which was Hober Mallow going to Suena to try to figure out what's going on with the presence of nuclear weapons and discovering that finally the Galactic Empire is gone, that it has finally collapsed permanently, which in some ways would be much more resonant with uh, resonant with Gibbon's um, model for the long history of the fall of the Roman Empire. Right. There's actually a real sense in in which Mallow kind of takes a time machine and we're, we're going to 
revisit that in a little bit. We're going to go back to late antiquity, but let's let's start by looking at what's going on really with Terminus and the foundation. And really, I, I want to follow through with what we saw in part three, which is this construction of a church and something that looks very much like the medieval church of the 13th century with Salvor Hardin as a kind of Pope Innocent III figure. And now, you know, we fast forward, you know, quite a while, 75 years, I guess, and we see that this church, you know, still calling itself the foundation, has taken over the four kingdoms uh, and done this through religion. That's the world as as presented here. I'm not sure yeah. what that really means though, right? What does it mean for the foundation to have used religion to take over the four kingdoms? Like, right? I, I, guess, I guess really what I'm asking is like, what's the constitution here? Is this some kind of centralized state or is this actually just some kind of loose hegemony or something else entirely? Yeah, it's really hard to get a sense as to what 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 the kind of model for exercising power is for the foundation over all these territories that it has apparently taken control of. Um, all we get the sense is that um, the foundation has continued to spread its influence by spreading its religion. And we know from part three that spreading its religion involves the adoption of of uh, nuclear power on planets. And so for me, we get the sense of what's going on here is more the establishment of a kind of form of hegemony that is simultaneously cultural and economic, Um, that it has made them made its client states or whatever we want to call them reliant upon its technology and subservient to its religion. And so nobody's necessarily, um, you know, there, there's no sense, for instance, that there are regional governors from Terminus that are going out and sort of sitting in power in any of these territories. They're still kind of the, the, the four kingdoms are still kind of referred to as four kingdoms and stuff. Um, I get the sense that what we have here much more is a kind of hegemony um, than direct lordship or subjugation or what we might consider to be outright imperialism. Yeah, I agree completely. And one of the pieces of evidence that we have for that is that Terminus has a foreign secretary and that dude's job right right, is actually to treat with the four kingdoms. So there is this sort of double system happening here. There's the secular government of Terminus and then presumably also secular government of each of the four kingdoms that are nominally all independent from one another. But then there is the church that exercises this cultural power, cultural authority, and also economic power and authority. And and one of the things we might look at to answer the question of, is this a centralized state or some other type of, of political system is what are taxes like, right? Are people on Smyrno hmm. paying taxes that are going to Terminus? And I, you know, we don't get anything in the text about that, but I think that the answer is no. no. I don't think that's yeah. what's happening here, but I do think that tithing might be. Hmm. Yeah, you could be. Yeah. Something like this, some some sort of quote unquote voluntary contribution or something like that. Yeah, it's it's notable. You know, I was just thinking of this as you were talking. It's notable that a big point that Asimov makes a big point in part five of saying that there is this character, Publis Manlio, who winds up not playing a major role, who is the foreign secretary, but also the primate of the church. And, And some considerable emphasis is given to the fact that he is fulfilling 
both of these roles, both the foreign secretary, the secretary for foreign affairs for the mayor's office, but also the primate of the church here. Um, very much, I guess, emphasizing that at this stage, foreign relations between Terminus and all of its kind of subject planets and stuff are mediated through the church, um, which would give give a lot of credence to your idea of some sort of tithing system or some kind of ecclesiastical dominance um, that is taking place. Certainly the, the church, the foundation church, is able to exercise, uh, you know, pretty serious influence on what's happening on these other planets. Uh, you know, and we see that in part three, right, where sermons are being used for that. And then, of course, yeah. also there's the interdict, right? And so I think we can imagine that those continue to be the tools that are at the disposal of the foundation church here. They don't need to use them anymore. Uh, they used them, presumably, you know, this one time on Anacreon uh, as a demonstration of, you know, how this is going to, to work and haven't needed to use them since, because it does seem like everything is, you know, just operating smoothly. But from the perspective of Terminus, where there is still a mayor and the mayor is still the head of state in from the perspective of terminus the running of the church is actually a part of the mayor's job but he delegates it to the foreign secretary right who presumably yeah. serves at the pleasure of the mayor and can be dismissed you know there might be some voice of the um legislative council there the way that you know this is true with the senate in the united states for example you know there might be some kind of oversight or something there but definitely it is a but definitely it is an inferior role to that of mayor but presumably also people out in the four kingdoms don't quite see it that way and yet there are also these hints that um Several characters believe the time is right for a single person to fulfill both the roles of mayor and primate of the church, which apparently has not happened yet in the history of Terminus. Those two roles have always been kept separate, the mayor, the head of state and the head of church. Um, but several characters in part five do mention the possibility that for the first time there might be a mayor who is also the primate of the church, a kind of signal of the complete integration of what we would call church and state, I suppose, on the horizon. It's very unclear whether Hober Mallow actually accomplishes this. He makes a reference to the fact um, that I, in, in this new world, I must be both the, the mayor and the head of the church and stuff like this. And yet he is undeniably serving as kind of a secularizing force he, he doesn't have a religious education. He doesn't care at all for missionary work. This is one of the points that's made over and over again, um, that he represents a new type of power that is not religious in nature. Um, and, you know, this is this is not this is somewhat in keeping with with kind of themes that we are accustomed to teach in history, um, that the kind of complete merging of political and religious power in some ways sets the stage for the backlash um, against religion as a form of power in Europe um, and kind of sets the stage for, for a kind of more secular form of authority and stuff like this. So, so there are some interesting ideas that Asimov is playing with here in terms of the moment in which it looks like church authority and political authority are going to be thoroughly intertwined with each other is also the moment in which kind of religion begins to drop away as a form of political power. Yeah, absolutely. This line here about about putting the the 
primacy and the mayoralty into one person is actually being spoken to the person who is the primate of the church, this Publius Manlio, uh, by someone who's actually like the, the the advisor to the mayor who is working against the interest of the mayor here. He thinks the current exactly. mayor is actually fairly incompetent. So um, he's actually trying to uh, orchestrate some kind of change, though it's also quite clear that he's manipulating Manlio and maybe doesn't really want this to happen. Um, actually, I wanted to take this somewhere else, but let's pause on this here. Let's actually read the line that you were invoking. Here's what he says. He says, since Salvor Hardin's time, the primacy and the mayoralty have never been combined in a single person. And you you have interpreted that, Jay, I think, to mean that that no one has ever held both of those offices at the same time. I think Salvor Hardin has, and it's only since him they've been split in two. And this is a question we had you know, last episode. Yeah, I think what we're supposed to take away from this is that in Salvor Hardin's time, he effectively held both of those positions, but I'm not sure there was a primacy of the church yet for exactly this reason. I'm not sure it existed as an official office or anything like this, that we're supposed to understand that the church has become more hierarchical and more institutional since the time of Salvor Hardin, and that at some point this office of primate was created and that nobody's held them simultaneously since then, but that the office has grown in importance as the religion has grown in importance. Just my kind of cursory reading, I suppose, of that line. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, that these titles would not have, or at least the primacy, the primate title wouldn't maybe have actually existed uh, for Salver Hardin. He simply had all the power and authority of it, but without the title. And that's then a real interesting question. Uh, you know, there's a great room here for someone else to write a story about uh, what happens when Salver Hardin dies. Presumably he does not retire, yeah. right? Presumably he dies, but then these offices have to get split in two. Is this the point then also at which the primate also becomes the foreign secretary and is, you know, from the perspective of of Terminus firmly ensconced in a subservient role to the secular authority. I, I mean, that's that's a part that I want. I wish I wish Asimov had written that as uh, part three point five. Yeah, that'd be a really interesting extra story to to see the kind of development of what we would call kind of church government here, um, how how it kind of emerges as an institution. Um, you know, the the other line I was looking at here is not quite what I remember. This is on page one eighty nine of our edition when Hober Mallow. Um, is delivering his speech about how he's going to seize power. And he's speaking to one of his associates and says, listen, I'd seize the government by force if I had to, the way Salvar Hardin did a hundred years ago. There's still that Selden crisis coming up. And when it comes, I have to be mayor and high priest, both. This, you know, so what he says there is priest, which is interesting. And we seem to get a sense that at, by this point, the priests of foundation have kind of emerged as almost a separate caste of people. They, they have a certain education that they go through. They have a certain status that has accrued to them or something like this. And that by virtue of their training or some other kind of, you know, what we might call ordination or something like that, um, they now exist as a kind of branch outside the secular government that, that it, you know, you're not supposed to be both at the same time in some ways. You're supposed to either belong to the church as a priest or you belong to the secular government as the mayor or something like that. Yeah, I guess what we're supposed to understand about the primacy, the primate, Publius Manlio, you know, holding that office here in this story, is that actually, despite being a member of the, the mayor's cabinet, yeah. may actually be exercising more power than the, the mayor, at least certainly than the current 
mayor who's not very good at the job. That's real clear. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right to be thinking in terms of the Reformation here, right? It's not just the Renaissance. It's also the Reformation, which is, again, another big marker. One of the dates you put out there for the end of the Middle Ages is, you know, the nailing of those 95 theses on the the church door, right? I think you said 1517. 1517, yes. No, those were not random dates, dear listener. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so I think definitely that's something Asimov has in mind here. And we're, we're seeing, but interestingly, I think, you know, we're seeing that the problem here is that, yeah, the church has become more powerful than uh, secular authority. And that's not good government, I guess. That's not good. That's definitely the underlying value there. But the solution is not to separate them <laughs> further. It's yeah. actually to reestablish the, the the unity of them, but to make sure that you've got a merchant who likes money and, I don't know, comfortable things and secular things uh, in charge. That's an interesting solution. And, you know, there's other interesting references throughout part five that are never fully explained, but kind of hinted at um, that there are figures who receive what is referred to as a lay education, um, as in a secular education, lay as in lay people in education, not part of the church or something. Um, And every time this is hinted at, it's usually by a, a, a kind of priestly figure kind of hinting darkly at the dangers of a lay education, or maybe by one of these traitors who is sort of referencing the fact that Uh, Yeah, I had an education, but it was just a lay education. And the sense is that this is something new, that this is an emergent new cultural phenomenon on Terminus, that that there exists now the possibility of a form of education that isn't part of the church, um, and that this is going to have repercussions. Um, one of the one of the points that Jerain Sutton makes about the traitors in his early conversation with this Publis Manlio guy about why he thinks the traitors might be a chaotic um, threat to the order of the foundation is that they are educated, but not religious. Um, they have this lay education um, suggesting that there are some kind of that there are cultural wheels turning now that are not purely kind of religious in nature that are not purely ecclesiastical. And given that what Asimov means by education, it seems always to be nuclear physics and and (laughs) engineering, right? Things that are relevant to industry and technology, that what he's really saying is that the church is losing its monopoly on the knowledge yeah. of nuclear physics and nuclear engineering, and that that's going to be a dangerous problem. That's a threat to the power of the church, because that's actually the thing that the church is holding over the secular authorities on other planets in the the four kingdoms. And Exactly. And there's an interesting way where we can take that back to something we were talking about last episode when we did part three about equality equating the monopoly on this this sort of nuclear knowledge with the monopoly on writing as a type of technology in the Middle Ages. Because a historian, Teo Ruiz, who has uh, worked a lot on medieval Castile, which is really, say, medieval Spain, I suppose, uh, and and in particular, high medieval and and late medieval Castile, uh, has actually coined the term the laicization of government as opposed to the secularization. And what he shows with this phrase and in his work is that the monarchy of Castile actually kind of broke the church's monopoly on literacy fairly early on, like in the late 12th and in the early 13th century, and began to employ people who were not priests in the the roles of, of 
clerks and scribes and and so on, and so sort of freed themselves from that type of monopoly. But he wanted to emphasize that that did not mean that these people were somehow secularized, that they were not religious, that we're still dealing with a, a world, a culture in which people are profoundly pious, but that they are receiving their education outside of the, the church and that people who are not members of the church are using this technology that elsewhere in Christendom is still the monopoly of the of the church, which is a real interesting way to look at that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great way to, to, to imagine exactly what's going on here. Um, laicization, the, the, the sort of emerging possibility of lay people sort of fully participating in the the learned norms of the day, the kind of educational norms of the day, and through that being able to wield sort of political influence. Um, it, it's made the, a big deal is made of in part five um, in an early conversation that Mallow is having with a character named James Twer, um, who presents himself as a traitor, but turns out to be a traitor as in one who <laughs> trades, not a traitor. He's also a traitor, right. as it turns out, because he is, in fact, a double agent uh, of the Foundation Church who is there to sort of observe Mallow. But one of the things he is sort of arguing for in his role as a traitor um, is that he, he, he's pushing for the idea that the time has come for traitors to have a seat on the city council, um, that these you know, okay, the term is used, the term used there is secular, but these lay people effectively, the time has come for people with no religious education to start to have political representation, um, that these lay elites um, should have a say in government and so forth and in policy making and everything else that is going on as foundation begins to expand its hegemony further and further um, into the galaxy. And so this is exactly it. What, what you're talking about here is the remaking of power as lay power in some ways as it's been it's becoming laicized um in even on foundation itself yeah this is a really great observation that opens up a lot of new questions for me here about like what is the council here yeah. that is the legislative I wonder body this also who's, yeah. yeah who's 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 in it i sort of took traitor here to mean certainly that there would be people from terminus on the council but i actually read this as opening up the council to people not from Terminus, people like Mallow, who is not from Terminus. He's a foreigner. I mean, that's literally a word that's right. used in the a text Smyrnian, to describe yeah. him. Uh, An is, outlander. Yeah, yeah. Is, is kind of open up the citizenship to actually recognize that the four kingdoms plus Terminus are maybe not a hegemony of, you know, run on Terminus, that they actually are becoming a single culture uh, and a single state, and that we need to confer citizenship on at least some people on these other planets and let them have a say in the government uh, and so on, which is a, a big thing that happens uh, during the early days of the Roman Empire as well, that, um, uh, you know, the sort of first century of the Roman Empire that gets wrapped up in a lot of court intrigue and, and so on, allowing, you know, people from Gaul to join the Senate. Can you believe it? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I, I had read that scene a little bit differently and that exchange a little bit differently. I thought what was being suggested there um, was that the trade guild um, would have a sort of official presence on the city council, right? That there would be a representative who was there as the representative of the trade guild, that, that the trade guild was emerging as kind of a political force. So not just that a member 
not just someone whose job it was to be a trader might run for an existing city council seat, but that there would be now a city council seat reserved for a member of the trade guild or something like this. Well, I think that that's more correct. And that's certainly more in keeping with what would be happening in in the high Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages for sure. Yeah. I guess the question I have about this then is who actually is holding positions in the council? Like what, what is their background? Who are these people? Are that, do they have religious education, right? Did they all go to seminary um, necessarily? I mean, the, the implicit reading of this sort of like new lay education is that if you've received an education, you've gone to seminary in this world. Is that true on Terminus though? I have no idea. Yeah. That's a good question. I think it's not true on Terminus. I think there is lay education on Terminus. I think this business with the lay education is actually really about, you know, all the foreigners, the people in the foreign yeah, kingdoms. That's right. Though it's all very confusing because Asimov does not spell any of this out for us, right? He has not anticipated our questions at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because there's this reference in part four to um, the traitor uh, Ponyets, who's the central character of that, having gone to seminary and sort of dropping out of it or something like that, but still has this religious knowledge that he can kind of leverage in key situations um, to make negotiations and stuff like that. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, it would be interesting to know more about the the what Asimov was imagining the council to have consisted of since the time of Salvar Hardin, right? In, in part two and part three, I guess more in part three, we see that there is a city council and there's this kind of insurrectionist actionist party who's trying to unseat Salvar Hardin. But the church has not really been firmly established as a political power at that point. It's still in its kind of nascent stages that Hardin has been inculcating and stuff like that. So at that point, the city council members are just kind of elected officials um, of, of Terminus and stuff like that. It would be very interesting to know what's happened in Asabov's mind to the governing legislative body of Terminus in the time since the church has become so powerful. I guess by having this character who is both the foreign secretary and the primate of the church, he's trying to hint that there has been greater integration of those two institutions without really exploring the details. We do get some numbers about the legislative body, the council here, uh, that the membership is numbered in the the low hundreds. It's maybe on oh, par yeah, with right. like the House of Representatives of, of the United States. It seems to be about 300 or, or so uh, people in it, maybe closer to 400 people in it. But I, I think we assume, but without Asimov ever telling us, but I think we assume that these are people who are representing geographic districts of some sort, but that might not be true at, at all. We do know they're elected and that they are themselves both a deliberative and legislative body, but the mayor seems to have a lot of authority. I mean, obviously it does, right? The mayor yeah. sort of operate as a kind of elected monarch. This is really a constitutional monarchy in some monarchy. sense, but yeah, yeah like we just don't right. even know like what the actual job of counselor is. It's not at all something that Asimov spends any time on, even in part three, when we're actually getting the formation of a political party yeah, <laughs> within that's the right. legislative body. It's kind of a funny trope of fantasy literature, right? That, you know, w- when you need to have a governing structure of some sort, but you don't want to like get into the details of it or anything, you just call something a council right, and then just right. kind of say there are people on it, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let, let me talk to the council. I need to talk to my counselors. Let me talk. Let me consult with the counselors. We need to meet with the council. <laughs> and it does seem like maybe these are not 
representatives of you know geographic areas the way that we have yeah. in most of our modern democracies that maybe this is actually something more like what is going on in the middle ages when these people are, are representing the different elements of society the different components of society and so yeah. the idea that 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 merchants uh, and perhaps just any kind of like you know economic power financial power commercial power has been left out of the having a say in how the state is run, you know, is a big deal here. But then who is having a say? I mean, I don't know that like church people, like, you know, uh, you know, the priests and so on are occupying positions here because the whole deal with this is that Terminus knows this whole thing's a sham and no one on Terminus is a member of the church. Yeah, exactly. And, and also that like, you know, a, a point is being made of saying that um, this one dude happens to be foreign secretary and primate of the church, suggesting that most people who are on the council are not part of any kind of religious right. hierarchy or anything like that. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying, kind of evoking representation by population types, something similar to like the Roman assembly system where you have the the plebeian assembly and, and the tribune sort of representing them or even a little bit like the Estates General in, in France, um, you know, where, where each kind of segment of the population or class of the population represent, has representation through a specific medium or something like that. That would certainly explain the kind of like um, it's time for the traders to have a seat on the council, right? Once this profession, once this part of the population has gained enough influence, it's time for them to sort of have political representation as well. Well, and this is a big deal in the high and, and late Middle Ages as well. I mean, even just thinking yeah. specifically of, of the context of France, right, since we're, we're thinking about the Estates General as well, that a lot of the developing power of the, the Capetian monarchy against uh, counts and dukes in, in other regions of France, most of whom have way more power and wealth than the actual king does up until about 1150, maybe even up until about 1180 yeah. or so. And part of the strategy of the Capetian kings to circumvent dukes and counts and to become powerful, more powerful, and to get more wealth, uh, and you know, and to accrue that to the state and to the crown is actually to start working with merchants, right? To yeah. actually become to to actually enhance the power of the crown by really creating something that we might describe as an alliance with merchant classes in cities against the landlords of the countryside. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can also think in in sort of, I guess, somewhat into the later Middle Ages, um, the kind of growing influence of guild structures um, within kind of communal government is is something that's being evoked here as well um, as as various professions kind of organize into guilds, the 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 leaders of those guilds become very um, powerful figures in civic governments and, and stuff like that, um, which seems to be kind of an idea that that Asimov is playing with here as well. The, the kind of evoking of the traders guild, which, you know, now the, the notion of kind of like space trader guilds feels like a, a really kind of cliched concept in some ways. But the, but this idea that somehow what what the traders are are freelance traders, but who nonetheless belong to an officially sanctioned body um, that is the Traders Guild or something like that would seem to be designed to to evoke some of the the changing kind of political economic structures of the late Middle Ages. Well, right then, do you think that the 
other members of the council or the members of the council themselves are representing other, yeah, I guess types of guilds or something. And and what would those guilds yeah. be? Right. Because let's be clear that we're not talking about um, uh, people involved in business strictly right here. We're talking about merchants, people who buy products from one person and sell them to another person. They're the people who aren't represented. So like, yeah, are there like manufacturer guilds on the council? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what else is happening on Terminus at this point? So you have manufacturing. A lot is made of the fact that there's all sorts of like little luxury products that are being manufactured on Terminus at this point, like ovens that roast meat really effectively and stuff like this. <laughs> These are the kinds of things right. that are that, that Hober Mallow has for sale of all the things. Yeah, how many, sort of, how many seats does yeah. the like chef's guild get? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we presume there's agriculture going on on Terminus at this point, right? There would have to be, um, you know, it's funny that, it, you know, it, once you really begin to break this down in some complicated way what asimov is playing with maybe without even really talking about it is the division of labor in society um and and sort of the 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 proliferation of of different kind of economic roles on terminus well there's a a role on terminus that we have not talked about uh since part two and that's the encyclopedists and so let me ask you this question jay is the encyclopedia project actually still going on even though we have not seen it (laughs) since part part two so the only thing i can say about that is that it must be right because (laughs) at the beginning of every part of the book we get a little quote from the encyclopedia galactica and some of them talk about hober mallow so there's somebody in the future who write about hober mallow as the first of the merchant princes and so yes the encyclopedia galactica project must still be going on at this point yeah and we we somehow have managed to not talk about these entries i think at yeah. all on any of the other podcast episodes but that's how asimov does actually a fair bit of of world building it's how he sort of you know connects they they, they sort of serve as being the tether from one part to the other and which is a really brilliant way to to do that but yeah the encyclopedia project is still going on it still must be a massive employer must still actually be a massive force in society uh, in it you know in part just because it is the repository of knowledge and has like the whole you know educated professional class so yeah how many seats does the encyclopedia project get on this council two <laughs> right <laughs> i'm just guessing, i mean yeah I don't we know. don't know but i assume that they've actually got a pretty big say in things though they also Probably may not do. i don't know because louis peren did not seem interested uh no. in, in things but uh yeah there's a i i want a constitutional history of the foundation and i want a prosopography of the council these yeah. are these are the scholarly projects i want i'm going to start applying for grants uh, to, to undertake yeah, this we research. should do this yeah yeah <laughs> we what, what what we want is a we want a Wikipedia of of Terminus, right? Uh, we want all <laughs> all knowledge of Terminus sort of organized. You know, it's funny. I never thought about this until this moment when we mentioned this. But these little quips from the Encyclopedia Galactica that are found at the beginning of of each part that sort of hint at the story to come and do serve a really nice role as the kind of connective tissue between sections um, do continue to write. So there's, there's an excerpt from the encyclopedia Galactica about Hober Mallow's career, um, which, so we presume this has been written maybe a hundred years after the events of part four and something like this, which suggests that in fact, the encyclopedias are keeping quite up to date in their compiling of history and stuff. And so they, they have a, 
They have taken seriously the criticisms of Salver Hardin. They are no longer just compiling old knowledge and organizing it. They've decided to chronicle contemporary events and add to the sum of human knowledge at this point as well. Yeah, I wonder about this. I, I, you know, it is just called the Encyclopedia Galactica. We don't get like a version number or a copyright date for, right. for it. I, I had the sense that what we're getting are excerpts from a a a publication date millennia in in the future. Because yeah. there is also I a sense that right. they they actually have lost some information about Selver Hardin, which you know could mm, suggest yeah. the Encyclopedia Project is not as strong as it used to be, or just maybe not interested in chronicling contemporary events. Though also. Of course, there's a lot more foundation story to come, so we don't know what might happen, you know, to yeah. Terminus in the future that records might get lost or, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I wish there were a sort of version number. <laughs> on yeah, that. that's true. A publication date yeah. or something like that. No, this is absolutely right. This is an idea that, of course, Douglas Adams played with in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where he talked about the the various revised editions of the Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, in which one of the characters revised the description of Earth from harmless to mostly harmless yes. in the second edition of The Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> well, there's one more thing we should talk about here with the the government of uh, Foundation, and that's really to look at the the context in which Asimov is writing, right? To take a step sort of outside of the text itself, to look at this metatextually, and to think about uh, trade and international trade in particular as a mechanism of empire building yeah it's a really interesting question i i was very struck um there there's a a line on page 197 that that i can't fully parse what is going on here but it's when uh mallow is kind of giving giving his speech uh to to sut towards the very end of the book about sort of how things are going to work from now on And he's talking about the war with Corellia, with the Corellia Republic. And he says, the whole war is a battle between those two systems, between the empire and the foundation, between the big and the little. To seize control of a world, they bribe with immense ships that can make war, but lack all economic significance. We, on the other hand, bribe with little things, useless in war, but vital to prosperity and profits. It's just a fascinating sort of phrase that suggests we have almost asymmetrical empire building going on. There's the old galactic empire that is trying to expand using traditional methods of warfare um, that are, you know, sort of focused on winning battles and things like this, very traditional instruments of power. And then there's foundation, which is waging a more subtle war of economic imperialism, the little things that matter and so forth. Um, This must be a commentary on, on Asimov's current day events um, seen loosely as sort of capitalism versus not capitalism. I'm not sure. Yeah. This is super interesting. Let's just refresh to say that, you know, this was published in 1944. uh, But I think, you know, Asimov is really seeing here the, the writing on the wall, right? I think there's a sense that, you know, the allies are going to win this war. It's really just a question of when. And of course, Asimov is working in Philadelphia at the Naval Yard. He's contributing to the war effort very directly during this time. And he, I, I think here he's thinking about the post-war world, that he's thinking about who's going to have hegemonic power over the globe at the end of this war. And I had the real sense here that 
the foundation is America and the Galactic Empire is the British Empire. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah, that, that their day is gone at this point. Um, that They're committed to an old version of empire building that's not going to work in the post-World War, um, in the post-war era, where economic imperialism is going to be the, the, the path to success or something. Yeah, right. And, and maybe just to clarify what, I, and, and also perhaps, I guess, to get us on the same page, make sure we really are on the same page. I think what, what I mean when I'm thinking about this is that the British Empire represents a state direct empire. That's a bit yeah. simplistic, right? But to say that it is a, an empire that is uh, run by a government and a, you know central government that has plans and uh, manages the thing directly, and that there are territories of the world that are officially a part of this empire, and that it, those territories are governed by representatives sent out from you know, the, the central uh, part or, you know, the metropole, we might call it, of the empire, right? Sent out from Britain, sent out from London, you know, most of the time to manage parts of Africa, to manage places really all over the globe in literally every time zone. The sun never sets on the British empire. But that America is going to definitely in the aftermath of the Second World War, but actually already has in the aftermath of the First World War, been establishing an empire of its own but a totally different type of empire that is not managed by the government, that is yeah. in fact managed by businesses. It's a commercial empire. And that one of the primary roles of the American government is to foster and facilitate this economic imperialism uh, while simultaneously not having anything to do with like direct state imperialism. I mean, that very much evokes the, the situation that's going on in foundation where um, we get no sense, for instance, that when a, a new part of foundation's hegemony is reduced to some kind of uh, dependent status or anything, that a governor is sent there or anything like that. Dominance is established by creating economic dependence, pretty much, which requires, which will then require effectively political subservience. Um, to foundation um, and to its to its merchant class, to its trader class and, and stuff like this. Everything seems to be being done here exactly through this, through the creation of economic dependence upon foundation. Strangely, though, Asimov also actually seems to be predicting the Cold War, which I don't think he really can be thinking about in those terms, though he, he might be. And I, I would love to be uh, educated about that. I would love to hear someone who actually is a Cold War historian who can tell me, no, a lot of this stuff was already happening in the in the 40s during the war. But the idea that there would be two hegemonic powers, both with access to hey, guess what? Nuclear power, as well as other advanced yeah. uh, industries, and this being the United States, and then also the, the USSR, the Soviet Union, both competing over what we you know, now call, or I guess maybe not now anymore, but used to call the third world, right? Where we were engaged in a competition to get people to join our side, right? To join the American hegemony or join the Soviet hegemony. And the promise was, we'll help you with technology. We'll help you with infrastructure, essentially. And whose deal is is better? Who's offering you what you really want? Asimov seems to be predicting that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is exactly what is happening um, with Corellia, basically, this kind of 
battleground planet, which has gained access to nuclear power, to modernization for all intents and purposes. In this case, through a decidedly not Cold War mechanism, which is the marrying off of somebody's daughter (laughs) uh, to create a political alliance. That's a little bit more on the medieval side of things for sure. Um, But the idea of there being this kind of as yet unaffiliated or unclaimed planet um, that is going to be a battleground or a staging ground for the playing out of two great imperial powers, um, the Galactic Empire and Foundation. Um, the, the parallels are are quite undeniable. I agree with you. Um, whether whether Asimov was prescient or whether or not this was already known as part of the discourse, you're right. I'm not a Cold War historian. I I don't know how early. This kind of political theory uh, came into being um, in the the post-war world, Um, but the parallels seem very striking. And it would be interesting as well, I guess, to compare what is in the the, the book version that we've been reading from 1951 versus what was published in the magazines, how much revising Mm. of this Asimov might have done. But even still, I actually think that 1951 feels a little early for uh, for making these kinds of assessments of of the the Cold War. In fact, uh, it's possible even that the Cold War official dates are not actually even including 1951 in that. I'm not actually yeah, sure I'm what Cold sure. War historians, uh, you know, label as actually being the Cold War. I think you and I, you know, as medievalists tend to think of the Cold War begins the day after World War II ends or like that Correct. night, even, yeah. I think, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. It's still going on, right? That's, a, that's as sure. much as I know about <laughs> modern history. Yeah. Well, as we promised, I, I guess about an hour ago now, we need to take a look back at late antiquity. We have to kind of travel backwards through time because that's kind of what happens when we go you know, check in with the Galactic Empire here. Absolutely. This is mostly uh, the episode where Hober Mallow goes to visit this former imperial capital, this planet called Siwena where we learn sort of the current state of affairs of the Galactic Empire. And it might not be what you would expect after 150 years of collapse. Right. The empire actually seems in some ways like it's in better shape than we should expect. On the other hand, it actually sounds pretty awful. We, we get nine emperors in 50 years, seven of these assassinated, uh, all sorts of other things going on here as, as well. And references to the current emperor being a cruel and vicious child um, of there being lots of Figures with the rather ambiguous title Viceroy, um, who try to rebel against the emperor and seize the imperial title for themselves and so forth. Um, This all evoking a situation, um, you know, that we think of as something that kind of leads up to the end of the Roman Empire, not that happens in the wake of the Roman Empire's collapse, um, which is kind of the world that we think Foundation is in some ways. Yeah, it's actually a real interesting juxtaposition in that, well, we have complained in, in hopefully what has come off as being lighthearted, uh, you know, but it complained in, in, in a way about the accelerated time frame that Asimov is working with, but it turns out he's only working with that time frame on Terminus, that yeah. the Galactic Empire is actually proceeding at the same pace of, of, of de- de- you know, decline and fall, I guess, as the actual Roman Empire. But that Terminus is, is going through all of these phases of uh, teleological historical development at an accelerated rate, 
presumably because Harry Seldon has, you know, devised it that way, which is, you know, a topic we'll take up in, I don't know, 15 minutes or, or so. We'll return to that. But yeah, when we go back and look at the Galactic Empire, it is basically the fifth century. That's that's what's happening here. We get, yeah, these child emperors, which is a, a major feature of the Western Roman Empire in the late fourth century and the fifth century. There are four of them between 367 and 455. And when there are these child emperors, you know, just meaning, you know, the person who's an emperor is not an adult, is a, a child. Uh, when we have these child emperors, power usually is in the hands of a commander in chief, usually a relative. In fact, really, it's not dissimilar to what we actually saw on Anacreon in part three, uh, except that, you know, the commanders in chief here historically in the Roman Empire, I think, are generally more competent than Venus. Also, yeah. not like, you know, evil <laughs> the way that we require yeah. in our literature. We're also shown here, yeah, all sorts of usurpation, these, these viceroys who really are wanting to well, not be viceroys. They're wanting to be roys, meaning king. It's viceroy means, you know, vice king. Uh, you know, maybe we'll say emperor here, right? That they want to actually become the the sole ruler, uh, you know, reigning from Trantor, presumably, and controlling the whole thing. And this is also a major feature of the, the fifth century in the Western Roman Empire, where you get multiple claimants to the imperial throne almost any time an emperor dies, which totally looks like chaos to us. But we should emphasize was expected, was actually part of the system, and, and not just part of the system during the long process of the fall of the Roman Empire, but was a, a part of the process, really, of like the entire Roman constitution. What changes during the fall of the Roman Empire is that there is a lot of turnover at the top. It's not that the imperial throne becomes vacant every, you know, 10 to 25 years. It's that it's happening every other year, sometimes three times in one year. And so that's where then this becomes um, chaotic is really about the frequency of it, the frequency of civil wars. And this really is a big part of the process of the fall of the Roman Empire. And really, this is actually where, you know, something you invoked, I think, all the way back in our first episode, Jay, is this concept of, of movers and, and shakers. Are we talking about internal or external forces? Do we do we emphasize barbarians or do we emphasize civil wars? And and here we see Basimov emphasizing civil wars. And there's all sorts of, you know, it, it, it's funny. We get kind of a contradictory picture here in some ways where on the one hand, Mallow seems to be taking um, the presence of imperially etched nuclear weapons on... Uh, Corellia as signs that, in fact, the Galactic Empire is maybe resurgent in some ways, is pushing back outwards, is trying to re-seize control. Then when he goes to Suena, we get kind of the opposite picture of an empire that still exists out there, um, but is in really bad shape, is internally um, beset with power struggles, is kind of crumbling in terms of its infrastructure. This may be something you want to talk about. And, and so we get this kind of puzzling dichotomy in some ways of exactly what we're supposed to take away from the current state of the empire. Um, it's both apparently going to be a rival to foundation, the remnants of the galactic empire, but also seems to be um, in a state of collapse at the same time in some ways. Yeah, I, I guess what we're supposed to understand here is that the galactic empire at this stage is 
sort of re, yeah re, resurgent. I think that's a great word for it. But that the power it's wielding is much diminished from what it was uh, at you know the start of this novel and in, in, in part one, 150 years ago. And and even then, I think we're told in that part that the power of the Galactic Empire is actually diminished from where it had been yeah. even uh, you know a thousand years previously. This is one of the places where we were talking about uh, demographic change, about population decline, which we get hammered over and over again in both part one and part two, that although we're still dealing with the same scale of space, like in terms of how much territory there is, how many planets there are, how big they are, but there are just fewer people. And so yeah. uh, the number of nuclear ships or uh, you know nuclear vessels maybe we should we should say because oh, anytime no. you can you must across the bay in alameda <laughs> right. but where is alameda it's yeah. the problem that's really the question we have to answer here right but yeah what what they're giving to corellia is almost nothing it's like three ships or something or three ships i guess is what the foundation has has lost but it's it's not very much like it's um you know, compared to the actual real like height of what the Galactic Empire would marshal, that's not really there. And I think that we can say that about the fifth century uh, Roman Empire as well, that the Eastern Empire, which is being run as a separate thing from the Western Roman Empire, that has been true since the year 395, uh, not by design, just historical accident. And it, you know, it's not maybe even really totally clear at what point people sort of recognized that they were never going to be united uh, again, I guess maybe the 420s, people probably were pretty clear on that at that point but have is but the eastern empire is operating as the roman empire while the western roman empire is disintegrating and we're getting these sort of patchwork states we've talked a lot about that in previous episodes but the eastern empire run from constantinople is still very much involved in affairs in the west sending troops um uh to various places well really mostly let's just say Italy. And we get, you know, in the narrative sources, we'll, you know, we'll hear that, you know, this emperor or that emperor sent an army. And that's what we'll get. And we'll get numbers, but the numbers are meaningless numbers in pre-modern and in particular uh, ancient narrative histories don't mean anything well that's not fair to say they mean something but they are not objective counts that's yeah. not something they, that they're concerned they don't about mean the number they don't that mean they the are. number yeah. that, that is given there and so it's real easy to be reading these histories and think my gosh like the empire is on the move they've sent an army you know but they haven't they what they have sent is like a football team essentially but that's what passes for an army in the fifth century because there has been a pretty devastating population decline all, already I definitely think this kind of like temporary or minor resurgence of the empire that Mallow is observing here, the kind of ships being given to Corellia, the kind of attempt by the empire to, to push back out towards the periphery is intended to evoke the these kind of occasional attempts by the Eastern Roman or the Byzantine Empire to kind of uh, retake Italy, to kind of reestablish a foothold in the West and stuff like this, none of which long term proved to be successful in any meaningful way or something like that. But I think this is, you know, you're, you're right to sort of bring this up that what Asimov is trying to play with here um, is the idea of an empire that still has aspirations towards its old glory um, and is perhaps insufficiently aware of its own inability to achieve that at this point. And 
I, we, we should be clear about the, the status of the Western Roman Empire in the early and middle part of the, the 5th century. I mean, it's not until the late 5th century that the person we regard as being the last Western Roman emperor is actually de- deposed, right? 476 is the date that gets slapped on on that. But what we mean by the territory that is actually under some kind of real power of an emperor who is ruling in the West is just Italy, uh, some of the islands in the Mediterranean, and then parts of of Gaul and parts of the Balkans. That's, you know, Britain is long gone. Uh, Maybe we could say parts of Spain actually as well, but Britain is long gone. Most of Iberia is long gone. North Africa goes in the 420s and 430s. And so, you know, it is not very much, but Many of the people who hold the title of Western Roman Emperor, or many of the commanders in chief, or you know, generalissimos, we might say, who are the real powers behind the throne, if we're talking about a child emperor, are actually working pretty diligently to try to reconstitute the empire, to yeah. um, fight wars against usurpers, against other um, Roman generals who claim to be the emperor at this moment, or uh, independent states, some of which are. Uh, run by Roman generals, others of which are run by generals who identify in some way as barbarians, though they also themselves are generally Roman <laughs> Roman armies. Also, that's uh, a little complicated. We talked more at length about that in, in earlier episodes. But you know, there is energy here. People are people at the center are trying to prevent the disintegration. They just ultimately don't succeed at it. Yeah, the chronology here. You know, this this just to to pick up on a point you made earlier the the kind of chronology or the 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 sort of temporality that Asimov is playing with here is really interesting to think about as a kind of historian because you're absolutely right whereas out in the periphery the forces of history have carried us essentially by the time of Hober Mallow through the Middle Ages to something like the Renaissance or the Reformation in the heartland, the center hold of the Galactic Empire. We're still in late antiquity at this point in terms of historical analogies and so forth. So we have these kind of divergent temporalities that Asimov is playing with, where the heartland of the former galactic empire, um, in terms of historical storytelling, has remained stuck in some ways. Um, The periphery, what is referred to as the periphery, has sped forward, um, you know, pushing towards what we would consider modernity in storytelling times. And this, I suppose is is sort of the point in some ways that whereas in real historical time there was no Harry Selden and thus every historical space kind of proceeded at the same pace in the same temporality here in this world of foundation because of Harry Selden the periphery with foundation at its center has sped through time whereas the rest of the galaxy has kind of been left behind in some ways yeah I think Ascone might actually be a real interesting case study to look at here, which is on the periphery, but is not part of the foundation. Or, you know, it's not terminus and it's not the four kingdoms. And but we see Ascone in, in part four regarding the Galactic Empire as this distant memory, even though it's only been yeah. 150 years. Yeah, they have, exactly. They've, they, they've developed a, a sort of new religion, I, I guess, but that that is definitely meant by Asimov to feel primitive 
and backwards yeah. to us. Yeah. They're skeptical of technology, right? Which is always held up as a, as a marker of, of backwardness, you know, for, you know, those of us who are hypermodern, right? Being skeptical of advanced technology means something is wrong with you, that you're primitive and backwards. But that 150 years previously, these were people who were, or this was, you know, a series of planets that were part of the galactic empire, but that the pace of change is different for them as well on the periphery, right? The Terminus is sort of advancing forwards at this rapid rate, but Ascone is advancing backwards uh, at this rapid rate. At an advanced rate, but then is brought forward again at double the rate in some ways, <laughs> right? right? I mean, in the storytelling terms here, Ascone in 150 years, if we want to use very crude teleological terms, has gone from being part of the civilization of the Roman Empire to reverting to some kind of primitive pre-civilizational state to bring brought all the way forward to modernity by terminus in the span of 150 years while trantor itself is still enmeshed in the same sort of civil war state that it's been all along it feels a little bit like an early uh D world in which you can have <laughs> totally a roman does. empire and mongols and vikings and also conquistadors kind of all inhabiting the same world at the same time also samurai we should be clear about yeah, that. yeah like, exactly yeah <laughs> well and dragons and dragons well yeah obviously yeah. Obviously. <laughs> obviously dragons yeah who are we, who are ten thousand years old except and have always been around in human civilization which has not advanced which Everywhere has rapidly advanced to the Steel Age and then for 10,000 years has never advanced beyond it. Yeah. I mean, this is the impetus of like every uh, steampunk book ever, ever Correct. written. Yeah. Well, we should we should talk, I guess, maybe zoom out and talk about this book as a whole and revisit some of the the topics that we've talked about already. And since we've, we've kind of wandered into thinking about history writ large and, and, and teleology, this is a word we keep bringing up. In fact, maybe we should just pause and revisit what we mean even by teleology. Yeah, it's an interesting term. It's it's a term that is not looked favorably upon by most historians these days, I think. Um, but teleology, um, from the, the Greek telos, end, ology, knowledge, so knowledge of the end. Uh, teleology is a uh, model of history whereby history is seen as proceeding inevitably to a certain predetermined end. Um, and these ends can be of many different states, uh, you know, Christian, Christian history, for instance, history told from a very Christian standpoint has as its telos, its endpoint, uh, the apocalypse and the second coming and the judgment. Um, but you can also imagine models of history that are secular, but teleological, the idea that all uh, historical processes inevitably push towards uh, capitalism or towards the emergence of liberal nation states. Um, and th this is all all history naturally converges on such a point um, or towards communism for that matter. Um, often we think of teleological history as very much falling into social scientific thoughts, social scientific um, approaches to history, which tend to think of there being certain laws of development or kind of big macro processes that dictate um, the development of societies over time. And even though Harry Seldon never really clarifies what the end is, except for the rebirth of a galactic empire, certainly the world we seem to be in, in the world of foundation, is a teleological world where things are proceeding uh, along pre-scripted, determined pathways uh, that will 
have an inevitable conclusion of some sort. And then along the way, you have to pass through certain prescribed and necessary stages of yeah. civilization, right? This is a huge part of Asimov's view of history. And then also, you know, his view of future history, I guess here. And that I think is the real, you know, superpower or super science, maybe we should say of Harry Selden is that he understands that history is actually basically just a video game. It's a video game of That's civilization. Right. I don't know what, what version of Civ this is. I guess we're on Civ 6 now, maybe Civ seven yeah. for the Sid Meier video game series. So probably at this point we're on um, Civ 1 million and two or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. more or less how Harry Seldon sees history as, as, as being stages, as having to progress through these stages. And it seems like what he has done by uh, founding this institution or i don't know establishing the foundation is what i'm trying to say on terminus removed from the center of the historical narrative allows him actually to race terminus through these stages of civilization to kind of beat everybody else to the next stage or you know as many stages ahead which is going to i guess give them an advantage of, of some sort I mean, this is exactly right. And, you know, Asimov has a conception of the stages of history that are um, in some ways very traditional, um, that we move through um, a, a kind of civilizational collapse through the emergence of a kind of theocracy or um, religiously oriented civilization. And from there, we move towards a secular civilization whereby religion ceases to have a dominant force in political power and is replaced in some ways by trade or capitalism as the kind of defining feature of both society and, and of um, authority within society. I mean, this is a, a pretty traditional schema um, that he has laid out here for for thinking about the kind of stages uh, of of historical development in some ways. And for him, all of this is necessary. Uh, in fact, we're going to read a yeah. passage in a little bit in which he, he doesn't use the word necessary, but says invariable growth is a phrase that he uses, right? So this is a very social science approach, as you say, right? To look at yeah. uh, the story of the human past, to you know, look at history, I suppose, and to extrapolate laws from it such that you can predict the future from them. And, you know, this is, as we said in the, the first episode we did on Foundation, we don't subscribe to that type of thinking. And I, I, I'm not sure we could really find a historian who does anymore. Yeah, probably not. I mean, there are definitely social science leaning historians and 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 historians still deeply influenced by sort of um, Marxist theories of development and things like this. I think you'd be hard pressed these days to find anyone so rigidly committed to the idea of laws of historical development or stages of historical development that they sort of deny the role of human agency altogether. But certainly there are still people out there who do sort of comparative studies of revolutions um, or sort of uh, uh, studies of transitions um, to capitalism in, in emerging sort of third world countries that still very much rely on the idea of there kind of being macro forces that can be studied 
studied through basic principles of development or something like that. You know, so it's a softened notion of sort of what Asimov is laying out here. Yeah, I would say significantly softened, though this work, this type of of work that's often done by political scientists and economists bleeds over into the public policy realm in, in ways that I think historians wish they were consulted maybe a little bit more about about this yeah. sort of thing at least just to, to make a kind of counter argument about interpretations of the past so that 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 uh, public officials are actually getting sort of well-rounded advice and competing uh depictions yeah. of the past and so on so that they can make better decisions from them they have a sort of a bigger picture or a better picture clearer picture maybe of of all the possible interpretations of uh, of, of change over time one interesting example of that 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 you know, I, I've worked on a little bit in the past, and that actually relates to something we've talked about, um, our policies for promoting literacy um, within developing countries, which it, it used to be assumed that literacy was kind of this exogenous um, force, kind of sub- subject to the same kind of laws of development as, as an econ- economy or something like that. And that if you could just create the right kind of social conditions for literacy, conditions that mimicked where there was already literacy, literacy would kind of grow in, a, <laughs> in an emerging country or something like that. And it turned out this was very bad policy um, because literacy isn't some exogenous force. It kind of appears within pre-established cultural norms and stuff like that. And so to to really spread literacy, to, to really promote literacy in developing places, you need to embed it within kind of local conditions, within local cultural customs, within sort of local situations and so forth. And so you're right, th- thinking of development of, of any kind as interchangeable parts, take them from one place and stick them someplace else. And because there's laws about how this works, it'll work exactly the same. There can be very dangerous from a policy standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that uh, like asking a historian of the Reformation, uh, you know, for advice about how to uh, install literacy uh, someplace where there isn't yeah. is like a good idea because you know the answer you're going to get right is is uh, what you need is a series of intense religious wars for uh, over a yeah. century. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's- yeah, yeah. Basically, you need to push for religious uniformity, and that's more important than the balance of power or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of balance of power and the Reformation. We need to go back to part three, actually, and examine something that we talked about very briefly in in that episode. And it's really the the moment when Harry Seldon appears in part three and explains where we are on this teleology, where we are in these stages of civilization. And I think we'll just start by reading the the speech that he gives there, and then we'll we'll break it down a little bit. And I'll just read a, a little bit of that passage here. And this is on, on page 117. And here's what, what Selden says. The spiritual power, while sufficient to ward off attacks of the temporal, is not sufficient to attack in turn. Because of the invariable growth of the counteracting force known as regionalism or nationalism, the spiritual power cannot prevail. I'm telling you nothing new, I'm sure, right? So he's sort of immediately just acting like, obviously, anyone who's studied the past understands these laws of history and knows what these stages are. But I, th- I think we really should zoom in on the, you know, the specifics of what Asimov is invoking here. And I think this word nationalism is really important because what Asimov is really talking about here are identities, right? How do people yeah. identify who they are? How important are their Various identities and, and various positions in society. How do people, you know, sort of rank 
those things. And what he's saying here is that in the high Middle Ages, people's most important identity was their religious affiliation. And that gave power to the religious organization, what he calls here, you know, the spiritual power. But this was not permanent, right? And, and, and starting in the period of the late Middle Ages and early modernity, people began to emphasize their uh, national identities, I, I, we could say, or, you know, ethnic identities, um, even, you know, like over their religious identities. And so what Asimov is talking about here is the invention of nationalism. And, and that is a term that can be really uh, confusing. I mean, certainly we know this from, you know, you know our experiences as, as uh, university instructors that our students don't always know what that word means, but also I think even just professional scholars can disagree on on what we mean. So I'm going to pitch to you, Jake, uh, maybe a, de- a definition uh, that I use of nationalism, and, and then you can push back on it or, you know, totally agree with me or whatever <laughs> you want to do here. But yeah. from my perspective... Well, yeah, from my perspective, nationalism is probably best understood as actually being a belief system, a, a sort of worldview. It is ours, by the way, right? We can talk more about that, but that it's it's yep. a way of seeing the world, right? It's a way of, of cataloging and categorizing the contents of the world, the people who live in the world. And nationalism has uh, three key components. And, and the first is simply the belief that every every one of us, every single person belongs to a nation, which is to say that everyone has an ethnicity or a nationality, whether or not you want one. You have to have one. It's not optional. You have to have one. And then the second component of the three here is the the belief that uh, a person's national or ethnic identity is not just an identity that they have, but it's the most important identity that they have, right? That this is the way we actually really ought to be dividing up the people who live in the world is by their nationality, not by some other identity that they might hold. And then Finally, the third component here is the belief also that a nation should have the power of self-determination, which is to say, you know, some kind of political power. It's a complicated concept for sure. Um, So without necessarily stating agreement or disagreement at this moment, it's interesting that um, in the middle part of your definition, you synonymized nationality with ethnicity. That's sort of the, the, the assumption here that somehow nationality and ethnicity can, under the right conditions, be kind of interchangeable terms. And so I agree with every component of your definition of nationalism. It's absolutely a belief system. Um, it's the belief that everybody belongs to a nation, that this is how we should organize the world and that nations should have sovereignty, that they should have rights to self-determination and stuff like this. The problem with this, as with all definitions of nationalism, is to figure out who belongs to one, where you draw the borders, um, that delineate one nation from another nation. And I think right now um, we often do that by citizenship, um, which is because we live in a world characterized by nation states, not simply by nations, but by nation states, whereby it's assumed that nationality and political community, nation, nation as a community and political communities somehow overlap with each other. I mean, historically, this doesn't have to be true. We've used the term nation to talk about, uh, I don't know, the ancient Greeks, uh, the the nation of the Greeks, um, who nonetheless politically were divided into lots of independent city states, or you've seen the word maybe not entirely well used, but to describe the 
kind of cultural organization of Native American peoples before the arrival of Europeans into nations or something, which didn't necessarily imply any kind of political belongingness or anything like this. And so while we can certainly accept that nationality um, is a powerful mode of identity and a powerful way of conceiving of communities, especially in the modern world and so forth, uh, I've never heard, I, you know, thinking about what it actually means in terms of belonging to a community, I think is a trickier issue in a lot of ways. Yeah. What are the components that go into saying that uh, you and I, for example, have uh, an, an identity that we both hold in, in common? I mean, for us, obviously, that most important identity is being Cubs fans. Yeah, that's the real course. identity. That's, that's the real community yeah, that we belong right. to, right? <laughs> but yeah, what what components go into um, constructing an ethnicity or a nationality? And and one maybe I'll take a step back on that by you know before we go any further, just to say that um, kind of broadly speaking, just in a sort of etymological sense, ethnicity and nationality mean the same thing. One of them comes that's from true. Greek and one comes from Latin. But this gets super confusing because, as you point out, we live in a world that at least has been organized by the fact that some powerful political communities have been, or at least claim to have been nation states in the construction of modernity. And so we just use the word nation to mean country all the time yeah, think, now in I our world, right? Do. And so we don't know that it actually relates to or derives from the Latin word natio, which is a root that we also find in words like natal, as in like natal unit or nativity, as in like the birth of somebody or native, right? That it has something to do with being born in a place, like a place that you're born to or a group into which you're born. And yeah, so that all can get very confusing to us. But I think to say that nation or ethnic group is a, a a grouping of people, a community of people who agree that they have a shared identity. I think that's maybe a pretty yeah. like neutral statement. I think what can change. I think what can change over time is is what are the components that go into that identity, and those totally fluctuate both over time and over over space as as well. And so that even over time, and we can actually just use Asimov's uh, world here for for examples, right? What is it that makes someone uh, Anacreonian uh, versus what makes somebody Smyrnan, uh, for yeah. example, right? And we might find that on Anacreon, uh, having a common language really matters. But that actually in Smyrna, that doesn't matter. People speak lots of different languages. But what really matters there is that uh, they all wear the same type of clothing. And that's really Good. what they think of as being like one of their principal sort of cultural markers. And I think to tie this into Asimov a little bit, more in some ways in the way he uses the term nationalism here. I, 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 I'm skeptical of the fact that he's really thought through his use of this term here that thoroughly. Um, nationalism, he makes it synonymous with regionalism in this particular passage. But I think one thing that he is hitting upon here is that when we think of the characteristics um, that cause one to belong to a nation, the, the thing that makes you part of a nation or something like that, um, in our conception, it's rarely religion. That a religious community, that a religious identity or belonging to some kind of community defined by religion um, is not the same as belonging to a nation or something like that, that the, that the two are different modes of identity. Now, historically, whether or not this is always true or not, all right, that's that's a 
that's a tricky business for sure. Um, you can't imagine historical scenarios in which a shared set of religious beliefs might be part of a national identity or something. But I think from Asimov's usage here, what he's definitely trying to convey is this pretty modern idea um, that somehow um, nationalism was the mo- nation was the mode of community that emerged when a religious form of community was no longer viable or a shared religious identity was no longer viable. And so this is where, you know, maybe we should, we should talk about some, some dates and some periodization again, right? Cause this is sure, where Asimov yeah. is looking at the reformation, right? That breaks up the, the unity of the the Western Christian Church, the the Catholic Church, we we would call it today, Western Christendom, uh, with the Protestant Reformation, the creation of lots of new and and different and and competing uh, Christian religious communities, Christian religious denominations, and the breaking of that unity creates this space for having different identities, for identifying yourself based on what is your religion, right? What type of Christian are you? And I think that actually is what we see in the earliest parts of early modernity. I mean, we just made a joke about the the wars of religion and the Reformation, you know, leading to literacy, which is true because that's uh, people were reading a lot and printing a lot of books because that's where the um, wars of competing theologies were taking place and and conversions and and so on uh were taking place or, or proselytization i guess is really what i mean preaching and so on uh is it was is really important for that time but that out of this right in what I would say is actually not early modernity anymore. I think Asimov is skipping something here if he's yeah. taking European history as a model. Uh, we do then start to really get these national uh, identities, right? Where it really starts to matter uh, that you're French or you're English or Czech or German speaking uh, or you know any number of other you know, sort of national identities that we get in Europe. And that's really something that that starts in you know the the 18th century and then really flourishes in the the 19th century right and we we actually really see this move this nationalist movement which is itself you know kind of a a, a type of proselytization a type of preaching people have oh, to be yeah. converted to this belief system it's a minority belief system in the 18th century but by the 19th century it is the majority belief system and we we can see that in the examples of Italy and Germany that don't exist as states or exist as countries prior to the middle of the the 19th century and it, Italy and Germany right people in what today we call Italy and Germany really have to be convinced that they actually are Italian and German as opposed to say Bavarian or you know Roman or something like that and not just convinced. I mean, also there's a lot of violence involved in this. There are wars that go into building these nation states. Yeah, it's an interesting through line to begin to to draw from um, the Protestant Reformation to the emergence of of nationalism, and it it, it extends a little bit out of my area of expertise. Um, certainly, the the way the Protestant Reformation fragments the world of Christendom, you know, one one easy way to 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 think of that, although this is slightly over overly simplified is to imagine that before the Protestant Reformation in much of Europe, you could simply assume that the person you ran into on the street more or less shared your faith, more or less shared your religious identity. And this is why it could serve as sort of the principle for a kind of collective form of identity. After the Protestant Reformation, religion largely recedes 
to being a matter of private choice, of individual choice. There are lots of different confessions or denominations of Christianity to choose from. And once it becomes a matter of private choice like this, a private matter rather than a public matter, it's no longer a good thing to serve as a kind of principle for collective identity. And so people have to start to look elsewhere and so forth. To a certain extent, the wars of religion, I think, do set up the the foundations for this. Um, the Thirty Years' War, which I mentioned earlier, 1618 to 1648, was a long, bloody, nearly European-wide war fought initially for religious purposes. But by the end of it, um, it turned out that Europeans were simply less interested in religious uniformity at this point than they were in sort of stability and you know the the balance of power within Europe and to try to achieve that the 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 treaty that ends the war the peace of westphalia begins to largely think of Europe in terms of a collection of sovereign states um rather than in terms of a space defined by a kind of collective religious identity and so while you're right the story of nationalism's real rise doesn't really mature until into the 18th and 19th century and so forth. The seeds are, the seeds are established um, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation with the idea that the, the way to imagine Europe as a community, as a space, is as this collection of sovereign states um, with rights to sort of self-determination and state security. We can even, I think, trace those roots to earlier than that. You know, this is actually one of these places oh, where course, the yeah. lens or, you know, the concept, the idea, the approach of early modernity really matters, right? That if you're interested in tracing the development of nationalism in Europe, I, you, you can start that story in the 12th century or the 13th century Easily. if you want to, right? Yeah. And and one of the things that is happening at the same time as the real slow rise towards nationalism, the dominance of nationalism as a, a, a belief system, as a world worldview is also a, a change in uh, political philosophy about what what it even means to be a state, right? That uh, a word that we've actually, I don't think, used at all, and that's probably good, but we are going to use it now, uh, is feudalism, uh, <laughs> yeah, which we're not going to really get into. But I, I do want to say that we do have, you know, this this picture of the, the Middle Ages, a government in the Middle Ages, we, we should say, as being um, a, a system in which public power is held in private hands. This is, uh, that's a butchering of a pretty famous phrase. Uh, that sort of describes what medieval government is like, which is to say that uh, kings are not like the head of state of, you know, you know the, whatever that state is, right? The king of France is not just the head of France. The king of France is the owner of France. France or and its constituent uh, territories are real estate that you can get your hands on and that what you're getting your hands on is the right to make laws and uh, importantly collect taxes and other types of like fiscal um, uh, and, and, and resource extraction from from territories as, as well. But that these are things that you can get uh, by inheriting them from the person who had them before you. Maybe it's your dad, right? You can get them through marriage and so on. And so, yeah, like you could be the king of France and you're going to have some authority over different parts of France that's going to differ from place to place depending on exactly what property rights you have there. You also could end up inheriting property rights in other places, places that are not France. Uh, maybe a better place to be doing actually within France is England because, right, the kings of England actually end up owning or not just end up, but like 
own more of France than the King of France does for much of the, the, the high Middle Ages. People have heard of the Hundred Years' War, at least have heard the phrase a Hundred Years' War. Um, it's very much about that. This is a contest, you know, contest is a war between the, the kings of England and the kings of France about who's actually going to control France. And it's wrapped up in the idea that these are private properties that you can come to control. But by the end of the Middle Ages, there's a real, I think, belief that that's not a good way of doing things and that maybe we should define what is France and what is England. And this is actually like literally something that lawyers in France and England work out diplomatically with each other during and as a result of the Hundred Years' War. You know, one one famous way now to characterize this transition is to say that, you know, around the 10th and 11th centuries into the 12th centuries, we're in a world of lordships where lordship is the dominant way of exercising power, um, a, a kind of coercive dominion over people. Whereas over time through the late Middle Ages into the early modern period, lordship gives way to government, Right. Uh, government based on public offices that are perceived as having accountability um, and having to render account to the people over whom they are exercising authority and stuff like that. Um, I, I think is, you know, you know, one one good way or one way that I often talk about the problem for my students to try to think about the ways in which power operated somewhat differently in the 11th century than it does today. We've actually not invoked, I don't think, the names of any scholars uh, so far in this episode, which is very different from what we've done so far. So I, I wonder, Jay, if you had a book on lordship or the transition from lordship to government that you would recommend to listeners who might be interested in that, what would you recommend? Well, if you have time to read a spare 500 pages or so, <laughs> I would recommend The Crisis of the 12th Century by Thomas Bisson, um, which is exactly, uh, effectively a long essay. Uh, on this topic, on this exact topic about how a crisis of lordship in the 12th century gives birth to what we would consider to be governmental authority throughout the later Middle Ages and so forth. Um, and it's a very elegant exploration of the topic, not a short exploration of the topic, but an elegant one. Now, if you would like the more compact version of this, <laughs> I would suggest uh uh, the work of Tom Bisson's advisor, uh, Joseph Strayer, uh, a famous work called On the Medieval Origins of the Modern State, which I know, Glenn, has been a, a book that influenced you very much in coming to medieval history. Yes, absolutely. And I, I recommend both of those books. I was just playing a little drinking game with myself, Jay, about which of those you were going to recommend. And so it turns out I get to ah. drink because you said oh, that. you get to drink Exactly. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. I actually would probably recommend the Bisson over the Strayer, which which feels heretical to me. I mean, I can literally feel flames sort of sprouting up at my, my feet as I, I say that. But it is true that um, one can read the Strayer book uh, on the medieval origins of the, the modern states, or, you know, like on a train ride to work, which is literally how I how I read that one time. It is much shorter. Bissons is much longer. Uh, but I think Bissons, it's certainly more up to date. It's more more recent and we'll have more detail. And um, oh, yeah. Bisson is just a beautiful uh, prose writer as well. Though we should say that 
Strayer is really a contemporary of Asimov's. So, you know, if, if Asimov is sort True. of where your you know, interest in this lies, I would definitely recommend checking out the Strayer to be thinking of, to be reading what um, someone who was active at the same time that Asimov was, was thinking about these, uh, these processes. And Strayer, we should say, is a historian who did actually work in public policy. He was a historian at, uh, at Princeton and was part of the uh, the program of bringing uh, Princeton scholars down to Washington DC and during their spare time on weekends uh, to give advice to the CIA and the State Department in essentially waging the the Cold War and and certainly you know if if you're reading Asimov and are interested specifically in the kind of modes of development and transitions between stages of history um, that some of these ideas that Asimov is playing with um, the Strayer book is a, is a convenient snapshot to thinking about how historians deal with some of these problems. It's right there in the title on the medieval origins of the modern state. Um, you know, two, two loaded words that we've used a lot right there in the title, medieval and modern um, implicitly sort of implying that the book is, is about um, uh, uh, the, the, the developmental changes between two different stages of history and yet also the kind of underlying continuity between them. And the third part of, of three, uh, that book is divided into three parts. It was actually three lectures that he gave at the yeah, University correct. of Chicago, right? That then he revised for, for print publication. The third part of that is really about uh, the ideology or the worldview of nationalism getting its start in the, the high and, and late Middle Ages. So that, that's, that's, you know, if you only had time to read 20 pages, uh, that's what I would really recommend uh, checking out. The, the first part's yeah. about tax collection, which I'm super a fan of, so... And I, I don't know if uh, any of our colleagues will wind up listening to this, but I, I happen to know that one of our mutual colleagues um, in a remarkable bit of uh, manuscript possession uh, is in possession of the handwritten manuscript that Strayer wrote for those lectures, the original handwritten manuscript of on the medieval origins of the modern state. Because when you gave lectures and you were Joseph Strayer, you wrote them out by hand in those days. And that that document was saved by Princeton and passed down through a series of hands and is now in the possession of one of our good colleagues, actually. So an interesting bit of uh, historical preservation news right there. Well, now I'm playing another drinking game, but uh, we'll save that for, for off mic. <laughs> you tell me who's, who's got it, though. I suspect I'll be right. But Oh, we could all guess, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I want to bring this conversation back around to Harry Selden's speech, which is where we where we began here, right? Indeed, because yeah. Selden is explaining, you know, this teleology that you're going to go through these phases. And the next phase he says is this national power stage but then we get to part four and part five of this book and that's not what's next so what happened to it did we skip it or is it still coming it's so funny you know it, when we recorded on uh part three here i i I gave Asimov some credit for what I thought was kind of prescience, which is that a lot of historians now, um, in in sort of contradiction to older ideas, don't see the Italian Renaissance as marking the end of the Middle Ages, but as see the Renaissance as in some ways the culmination of the Middle Ages, and instead look to the Protestant Reformation as the kind of end of the medieval worldview, um, and that which set the seeds for nationalism and stuff like that. And, and so you might expect that something like that is what's coming next. But what we actually get is a story that seems more intended to evoke the Italian Renaissance and the rise of seniorial power and the rise of guilds and the rise of commerce 
and all these sorts of things, all of which is explicitly phrased in secularizing terms, no doubt about that, but is not the story of uh, the rise of national identity in, in parts four or five. There's no, really no sign of that. In fact, to the extent that we see any of this, um, it's almost the story of that being overwritten. We're just introduced to a world where there are Smyrdians training as traitors for foundation. Um, the closest we get maybe is Ascone sort of resisting missionizing efforts or any kind of missionary efforts, both Ascone and Corellia, I guess, based on local belief systems and stuff. And that's probably what Asimov had in mind in some ways. Um, so for instance, the Corellian Republic um, regulates trade and prohibits missionaries or something like this. And thus um, spiritual power is not going to be able to overcome Corellia because Corellia doesn't allow missionaries on it. Why exactly that would be nationalism or regionalism is a little bit unclear, but I, I think that's what Asimov must have had in mind here, that somehow spiritual power is eventually going to run out of vital strength because it's going to encounter places that are not welcoming of missionaries. Yeah, that, that's a real strange understanding of of national power and nationalism. Yeah. But Asimov has shown no interest in anything that we would recognize as nationality or ethnicity, really, in this in this story at all. There's a little bit here about you know whether Hober Mallow can be trusted because he's Smyrnin, but the only thing that makes him Smyrnin is that he's from. Smyrno, right? Like there's no sense that there are different languages, no sense that there are different clothing customs, different holidays, different food cultures. No. Just culture is actually just non-existent in this world and therefore cultural difference can't exist in this world, which is yeah. exactly like what nationalism is, is dividing the world up into people with different cultural identities. Yeah, which which sort of runs parallel to, to a lot of things we've been saying about this story in general, which is that Asimov's interest in historical development is not really an interest in culture. He talks about religion for sure. That's probably the closest he comes. But for the most part, I think he thinks of religion as ideology or as belief or something like that. Whereas culture just is not something that really seems to interest him all that much. Um, he has kind of these broad ideas about religious development, about trade, about economic exploitation, about political maneuverings and stuff like this. But cult culture is kind of a vacant category for the most part here, right? We, we have no sense, even when we go to Ascone, which is maybe the closest we get to a glimpse of kind of cultural investigation by anybody where there's these kind of ancestor belief systems and, and there's some religious rituals and stuff like that. Um, but other than that, you're, you're right. So little attention is made to sort of like, what are the customs of a people? Like, how do they divide up the year? Um, how do they celebrate birthdays? Um, what language do they speak? Um, what kind of stories do they tell each other? Like, what's their shared mythological background and stuff like this? None of these are questions that seem to interest Asimov in the slightest. And these are things that we take for granted in speculative fiction now, but doesn't really show yeah. up, you know, painting in broad strokes here, but doesn't really show up in science fiction until we get to the the new wave. And yeah, I think, you know, yeah. Ursula Le Guin is someone we can really point to yeah, uh, as, as you know, being kind of iconic for, you know, this, this shift. And that, 
you know, the place where you would go in the 1940s for this type of speculative fiction, speculative fiction that is interested in language and culture and, and customs, um, would be, you know, Tolkien's house in Oxford. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's right for sure. Um, and partially, it, it, it's just a question of different priorities in, in world building and things like this in terms of what you think is going to immerse your reader in the kind of concepts that you want to play with. And and for Asimov, again, what, what he's really interested in is historical development is sort of the, the progress through stages of history and stuff like this. And culture by almost by definition and the concept is not useful for talking about progressive stages of history because culture is diverse. Culture is complicated. You can, you know, culture doesn't go through stages in a simplistic kind of way or anything. Um, You know, cultural history doesn't organize things on a timeline of development or anything like this. Every culture sort of has its own internal logic and it's very hard to sort of plot them on a narrative or anything like this. And so it, it just, just by virtue of the kind of story Asimov wanted to tell culture was never going to be a major category in it, but it is interesting to find a writer throw around a word like nationalism with a capital N um, with so little interest in explaining what, what nation, what it, what it is to belong to one of these nations. Like how do you know you're part of a region in this world? Right. Right. Yeah. I think this is a great point because Asimov, you know, I think if we were going to put a tag on this book, and we can put many tags on this book about, you know, what type of science fiction is this, I I would say that this is political science fiction, right? This is science fiction that is interested in the development of a state, the development of an an empire it perhaps doesn't look as closely at the constitution as we would like such that we can know like <laughs> you know who these who these council members are and so on right but it is very much about the development of a polity the development of a state so um, maybe we should transition into taking a, another look and we're really near the end of this episode now into taking another look at uh, Asimov's political philosophy now that we've got the entire book under our our belts here. And maybe we should just ask ourselves, uh, ask each other, I guess that's what we're doing here. What Asimov thinks about democracy and civil liberties? What does he think about, you know, about classic liberalism, about the liberal uh, state that he's a, a member of? It's so complicated, isn't it? To, to, to read this book as political philosophy, which, which we must do. And yet the things that stand out at me immediately um, is the completely unapologetic attitude towards empire building, towards imperialism. Um, In fact, latently, we would say the praise of imperialism, the whole goal, the purpose of foundation is to build empire, to sort of stabilize and stave off the dark ages and chaos and disorder and things like this. And boy, it it sure, I mean, so there's very, you know, none of the mayors, none of the other figures, Hardin, Mallow, none of them have any other apparent goal than wielding power in pursuit of that end. There's no real sense of 
protecting private property. There's no talk of the preservation of liberties or anything like this. Like, why does foundation have to expand at all, really, in some ways? It's an interesting question. You know, I, I, my, my gut reading of this is that as a political philosophy, it's, it's sort of deeply problematic. But, uh, but I'm not sure. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, there are two ways, I guess, of looking at Asimov's political philosophy, sort of external and, and internal. And yeah, this external view of seeing this as really kind of a, a brochure for how awesome empire is, yeah. is I think something that we're pretty uncomfortable with. I think that's right. But that Asimov certainly was not. And I think many, many other people, <laughs> many, many other Americans, we should say, in the 1940s would not have been uncomfortable with, even as we're in the middle of the Second World War, which is really in some ways kind of a clash of empires. But I think that what Asimov has in mind for uh, really what really has to be read as a the championing of a new American empire, I think we definitely get that yeah. here in this last part, right? is really a drive towards universalism, right? That what he is really mm. in favor of is not empire in the sense that there's a core group that is subjugating another group or many other groups perhaps, but that he's looking for unity, for unification, mm. that, I, that he, I think he's interested in peace, right? He's interested in the establishment of a single world government as a means of ushering in an era of peace and prosperity for the most possible people. But his brand of that very clearly is to make the world America, right? It's it's not to make the world China. It's not to make the world yeah. the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany. But that if the world were, if, if the rest of the world were more like America, then we would all just get along. Yeah. What we need to do is convince the people, the, the primitive people of Ascone to give up their ancestor belief to receive capitalism. Basically. Yeah, because that's another huge part of this, right, is that <laughs> Asimov is unapologetically uh, in favor of industrial capitalism. Yeah, I mean, he, he's as a book, you know, I, I know nothing of Asimov's personal political philosophy, but as a book, this this must be read as a endorsement of the drive towards modernization that characterized kind of the building of an American empire or something like that. We're going to modernize the world um, by spreading us, by spreading, by spreading our, our sort of enlightened worldview. One of the things, of course, that he does with this, and, and in particular with Terminus, right, which is, you know, that's who we're supposed to be rooting for here, right? The Galactic Empire headquartered in Trantor is a behemoth. It's old. It, 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 needs to go actually and be replaced by something else. And and I think that is actually definitely a place where we can see that this is about America taking over world hegemony from Britain, yeah, right? Absolutely. For sure. But one of the things that Asimov is doing here in advocating this is presenting Terminus as a place where really bright engineers have solved resource problems. And so we yeah. can have an industrial uh, capitalist lifestyle, material culture, we should say, without having to exploit other people. I mean, I think in that sense, it's kind of a fantasy world in the same way that Star Trek is. It's kind of envisioning the same type of future. Yeah, that's funny. I hadn't thought of that, but all the emphasis on the the miniaturization of technology that's been achieved on Terminus, that they have nuclear reactors that can fit in something the size of a walnut shell and stuff like that is, is absolutely intended to sort of, sort of, play with that idea um, that the problem of 
resource exploitation, right? That, that, that Terminus is going to be able to build an empire without exploiting the material resources of any of its, any of its subjected regions or anything like that, except to the extent that they're going to, you know, pay them money for their tin and stuff like this, that we're not going to sort of destroy local economies. We're not going to destroy local material environments or anything like that. It's true because that problem has been solved in Terminus. Some of the the less utopic aspects of Empire have been alleviated through this through the project on Foundation. And we are presented with two ways of of, of building a, a, a form of empire, neither of which involves the use of conquest, right? Neither of which involves the use yeah. of military violence. We get uh, create a, a sort of religious uh, empire, and then we also get create an, an economic empire, which are not things yeah. that are doing violence to people. So I think that although you and I, and, and I think probably most people listening to this podcast are uncomfortable with the, the rah-rah approach towards empire here, that you know Asimov is someone who is clearly valuing peace and, and prosperity for everyone here. And there's none of the other kind of some of the other traditional markings of empire, right? There's no sense of tribute being exacted, right? hostages being taken, people conscripted into a military or anything like that. None of this seems to be taking place. He definitely has a vision where sort of um, the spread of foundation will simply establish Terminus as the center of power, but mostly will kind of spread economic prosperity to everybody else. Well, there's one more thing in political philosophy I, I want us to talk about, and, and that is to look at the, the two big leaders that we get in this story. And that's uh, Salvar Hardin and then also Hobart Mallow, who have some real similarities, real strong similarities. But Hardin in particular is someone who really interests me because he secretly owns the only newspaper on Terminus, uh, secretly owns it as a form of propaganda while he is serving as mayor. And then yeah. also intends to stage a coup. He ends up not really having to, but he intends to stage a coup. He tends to illegally take power from uh, the constitutional authorities. And he's the hero. He's the big hero of this book. And becomes the, the figure of legend for everybody else on Terminus afterwards. Right. The, 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 the guy everybody quotes, the founding father, effectively, of, of Terminus and of Foundation. And and Hober Mallow really follows in his footsteps here. He stages a not maybe a, a coup, but he's going to rise to power yeah. through and not you know not not the constitutional means, right? He's, he's he's using this court trial to give this big speech, and now he's going to to take power this way. It's a type of you know populism, I guess, a type of demagoguery. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he gets elected in a election that effectively he's sort of purchased in some ways or yeah. something like this. It's it's unclear. I mean, yeah, he gets elected in the way that, you know, demagogues get elected. Um but certainly seems, you know, unconcerned with kind of public service, um, with being a civil servant or anything like that, is kind of unabashedly pushing for plutocracy for rule by the wealthy and stuff like this. I mean, you're absolutely right to point out that the central characters of this story in some ways um, represent much of what we fear in politics, not what we look for. In both of these cases, and in particular with the case of Salver Hardin, right, the, the 
deliberative body of government is kind of the enemy to the the obstacle. Yeah, the obstacle, right, to the man of action who's got a plan. And and yeah, look, hey, maybe that's not so different from Aragorn and you know other types of heroes (laughs) we get in speculative fiction. But um, that works a lot better in an actual fantasy story than I think it works for for me in something that's meant to be presenting to readers a a picture of a kind of ideal uh, political system or at least allegory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm uncomfortable with that i was uncomfortable with this you know maybe in 2015 uh but we had like people actually storm our build the building where we have our legislative and deliberative body meet uh this year and uh yeah it's hard to read this after that some of the implicit politics of this read is deeply uncomfortable in the world we are now living in um which you know is probably not one asimov could have easily imagined um when writing this and it would be interested to to think about what a story about sort of politi- pol- the development of political history um like this would would look like if it was to be written today in the sort of you know to say nothing of post January 15th but you know post 9-11, post Gulf War world that we live in now, everything that's happened since Asimov, um, in some ways, I, I think would have to color this this kind of storytelling very differently at this point. The kind of confidence in the progress of development, um, in the sort of ability of demagogic leaders to, to sort of usher us towards utopia and things like this. It feels very different at this point. Yeah. You know, across the network, uh, myself and then then various hosts have spent a lot of time actually on political science fiction. Uh, in fact, coming up after these episodes early next year, we're going to have some episodes on uh, Heinlein's political philosophy book or one of them, oh, right? Wow. Uh, Starship yeah. Troopers uh, have spent a lot of time with Gene Wolfe's political science fiction. And also, look, a lot of Star Trek is political science fiction as as well. And, and something that I think about a lot, you know, I think, you know, a fun question to ask someone on a date or if you're at a party or something like that is, you know, uh, which famous dead people would you have over for dinner? And I think those are the people I would have over. I would love to, you know, give them like, I don't know, a few hours to catch up, <laughs> you know, give them a yeah. room, rooms to themselves to catch up on what's been going on and then have dinner and, and see how they, how they react to it. What would these sort of iconic figures of political science fiction, you know, in its golden age and, and, and at the, the nascent new wave, what would they say about now? Yeah, that'd be a really interesting conversation to have. That's for sure. Well, let's do one more uh, counterfactual sort of question like that, and then we can we can sign off and, and call our work um, at least uh, ended, if not quite completed. But uh, just a lighthearted question for for both of us to ponder here at the uh, end of many many episodes, many many hours on this many short hours. book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, meant more hours than book, I think. But uh, uh, the question is. As thinking of thinking as medievalist, what is an aspect of the Middle Ages, or maybe an episode from the Middle Ages? And we can say the long Middle Ages here. We can broadly conceive of the Middle Ages, but what's an aspect or episode from the Middle Ages that you wish Asimov had included, or, or maybe even more broadly, just wish that some science fiction writer would set in space? You know, it's a, it's a great question, and I, I've I've pondered it a lot, and. A lot of my answers seem obvious, and I I, I have an obvious one that I'm going to give. Um, But 
you know, thinking about the fact that there's this second foundation that Asimov keeps hinting at, that somewhere else there's another foundation out there. Um, in the same way that this is kind of the story as it's told is about the end of Rome and the rise of the Middle Ages, and the third part is focused on the rise of space Christendom and stuff like that. What if there had also been the rise of space Islam in this story? A rival religion that had appeared, perhaps associated with the other foundation out there um, that sort of, you know, had historical roots in the same way that Islam and Christianity have similar historical roots spring from the same kind of religious context and so forth. What if there was another? It doesn't even have to be a rival. I shouldn't even use this term. But what if there was sort of what if it wasn't just Europe in this story? Right. What if there was also the kind of Eastern front of the the collapse of the roman empire and stuff like that like a, another kind of uh nuclear religion out there or maybe it's not nuclear something else but but another group that was employing the kind of same strategies as foundation for the uh emergence of a hegemony and stuff like this i think this would have been interesting you know the the creation of the second foundation just throughout this part of this novel always felt a little bit like a red herring it's out there but it never really plays a role in the story like what if maybe that was its role introduces interesting possibilities like i don't know maybe the crusades in space although i don't really want that story but maybe, you know, a kind of borderland where these two religions have to coexist with each other, some kind of border space, maybe something similar to medieval Spain to kind of set us up for uh, Guy Gavriel K down the road where there could be sort of uh, an area where members of these two different religions were kind of interacting with each other and working out what the nature of their relationship would be. Like, what if the foundation wasn't so neat and tidy as this one institution? What if there were competing foundations with competing religions and competing hegemonies or something? This is an absolutely awesome answer to this question, Jay. And we should uh, point out that, you know, there are more books in this series and that, uh, in fact, you know, someone reading the book Foundation in 1951, which is, you know, this fix-up novel, as we've said, that takes these uh, independently published short stories or individually published short stories or novellas, I should say, and combines them into one book. But that Asimov had continued to write those short stories and novellas and publish them in the magazines. Yeah. And so everyone knew that the rest of them were going to get collected as well. And the second volume gets called Foundation and Empire, which is you know, literally just the thing we were talking about in the political philosophy section. And then, hey, the third one is called Second Foundation. Um, so, yep. you know, we could go get that and maybe we should re re you know revisit those at some point in the future. But I love this idea of, of, uh, of having uh, another religion or at least exploring the second foundation as taking the religious elements in a different direction. And I think that there's a, a way that you could do that where you contrast nuclear power with solar power. Ah, something like that. Yeah, good. That that would be a good way to approach it. Absolutely. You know, the, 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 there's some kind of sun worship or, or right. you know, yeah, some kind of a uh, fundamental doctrinal difference or something like this um, that that sets the two apart, even though they have lots in common or, or something like this, that that pushes them to to try to think in terms of hegemony in different ways or something like that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. And, and I, so I think that you and I in this way are both 
kind of envisioning that part four and part five didn't really happen here, and that part three kind yeah, of continues. That's right. and that's we want to, yeah, we want to <laughs> right, yeah, fast forward, I think, you know, a thousand years into the development of the foundation church and then the second foundation church and maybe see these two religious systems that focus on different types of energy. How do you get energy? And, you know, one of them is harnessing the power of, of starlight. And the other is harnessing the power that you get from splitting atoms uh, from elements that you dig out of the earth, right? Like we can just see yeah. whole um, elemental theologies kind of spinning out of those things. They sort of rival types of fire. And yeah, I, mean, I would, I mean, maybe we should go write this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should work on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly there's a lot of room for spinoffs, sequels, tons of fan fiction here in, in Foundation. And uh, I don't know, I, I would love for us to go back to our our uh, early adolescent roots, Jay, and actually <laughs> start, imagine speculative worlds together and do some shared start storytelling putting, here. Yeah, start putting <laughs> some words on the page. Yeah, uh, man, that would be great. Well, I think that uh, if we're actively planning that, I, I think that we're ready to close the covers of Foundation. So that is is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. Jay, thanks again for joining me on this. I'm, I'm sad this is coming to an end, but I am excited to go in that that next direction to do some some K with you as well. That'll you know take us back to our adolescence also, back to the 90s. Yeah, this has been a great journey. I've, I've really enjoyed revisiting this. Um, I'm amazed how deeply we, we've gotten into it and, and how much we have, we've found to talk about here. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next one. And also how much we left out of the episodes as well. I oh don't know God. that we've ever, we, we certainly have not on any of these episodes completed our outline here on this episode. I think we left about a third of it uh, un unsaid as we were going through. So there's even still more to say about this book. And, and I hope listeners will come talk with us about Foundation. You can do that at our forum on claytemplemedia.com. You can do that on the Clay Temple Media subreddit as well. And you can follow the network on Twitter. We're at Clay Temple Media. And yeah, as we've said, we, we do plan to be back with some Guy Gabriel K that'll probably be just a, a few months. Uh, and of course, also the regular Betas episodes come out every month. There is another bonus series like this one coming out in January of 2022. That's uh, Starship Troopers by, by Robert Heinlein. So I hope that we'll uh, see you there for those episodes as well. But until next time, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. <laughs>